This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hello, I'm Paul. I'm Tommy. And I'm Jonathan. We're going to talk about Shakespeare's Planet, a 1976 novel by Clifford D. Cmac. And uh, Tommy. Did you say 76? 1976. Yeah, it's, it's late, Cmac. Yeah. Wow, I thought it was earlier. No, it's late. Um, so this, yeah, I was saying uh, probably years and years ago, um, this is probably the first science fiction novel I read. Which is a pretty weird place to start, right? <laughs> uh, well, everyone starts somewhere different, you know? Yes, yeah, no. So I, I read like Madeline Langell, uh, which Wrinkle is science time. fantasy, yeah. And I'd read The Hobbit and uh, Lord of the Rings. And then I think I've, I probably read Shakespeare's Planet, and then my uncle steered me right and gave me a whole bunch of Larry Niven. And then, uh. Steered you right to, so, so <laughs> not to, so you're saying this that world? this is a good book, Jesse? Uh, it's not a great book. It's a very interesting book. I, I did a search of, um, uh, people's reactions to it on Twitter, and also I looked at all the good reads. There's a lot of Russian reviews, actually, which is interesting. Um, and, uh, it is, it is some people's favorite book, which is a weird choice, I would say. Um, I like, like teenage teenage boys. I think boys. I think it's because it was their first science fiction book and it just blew them away, right? Like as it would, and I I would say that it probably didn't blow me away, but it certainly interested me because I remembered some of the things. Uh, I mean, a lot of the things that are in this, but it's also sort of a floppy floppy story. Um, it's got a lot of things going on in it, but not a lot of resolution. It has some of the. Uh, C-Mac things I really like. It's not that great a C-Mac book. Um, but Tommy, you were saying you got the hard copy and, and you were describing the cover and I'm like, that's the Daryl K. Sweet copy. It has Carnivore on the left. It has, mm-hmm. um, it has, uh, Nicodemus, the robot on the right. And then presumably the time gate or what space gate wormhole thing he's working on. Yep. Um, so that, yeah, that's the like cover. He's working on it. Yeah. yeah that's, that's the cool. cover that I, read it in, in paperback. I think it's from 1978. So, um, you can see why I would like it, right? It's got, yeah, it's got it's a, a robot. Cool picture. It's got a robot and an alien. I just this wanted... says copyright 76, but edition, but first Valentine books edition, December, 1982. Yeah, Although 82. it could be a reprinting. Yeah. So the year, my sister whose house I'm at was born, you know, so baby, she's the baby of the family. What were we going to say, Jonathan? Jump in here. I loved it. I thought it was great. Um, this is my fourth uh, book by Clifford D. Simak. Um The first one I read was Special Deliverance. Uh, the second one was um, Waystation. And the third one was A Choice of Gods. So this is my fourth book by him. And out of those four, I think this is my favorite. Um, you, haven't, you haven't read City yet? No. City, right. City is a fix-up, though, Paul. Yeah, it's but not it's, a novel. even so, even so, it is, in my humble opinion... It's excellent, yeah. It, it is the best C-Mac. Uh, I, it's our very arguable. It's it's probably his most famous 
as it's a, his most as famous, his but it has my favorite last line of any story uh, in science fiction. Yeah, it's, he, he's an line. excellent science fiction writer. Um, so it's like, and Goblin Reservation, which we did on this podcast. Yeah, uh, that's more humorous, I, uh, but it's similar I, to this also. Got Goblin's yes, Reservation. But, I haven't read it, but I do have it. But I, I think Goblin's like. Reservation is a is a little more tight than this. This felt, as you said, very very floppy. And I mean, there's a whole subplot to this book that just doesn't doesn't really connect with anything else. It's like uh, I'm wondering, well, what's the point of the three robot brains when there's no real interaction between them and the rest of the plots like why you have this why is this here what what yep. it, it's not it's i mean it's it's i mean you could just as well have a single brain as a as a greek chorus i think well maybe he's doing a greek chorus bit it's gestalt like, no. was really big in the 70s remember there's theodore sturgeon uh story that's uh i think there's also yeah i think it's called baby is three um that's a gestalt story gestalt stories are um, it's a way of experimenting with, you know, storytelling. Right, but 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 it, but it doesn't add to this novel because there's, yeah. there's no interaction between the three brains and anybody else. Yeah, any like, yeah. way. I completely agree. I had that in my notes. I had that in my notes as well. Like this living tribunal ship thing. Like I, it was interesting, but did it belong in this book or was it like it was almost like. C-Mac just decided to shove, you know, however many pounds of, of crap into a, t- a 10 pound bag or 10 pounds into a five pound <laughs> bag. He could get. It, it was like, Hey, here's a neat idea. Let me just shove it in this novel. It's like, why not? Like, why, why not actually explore that idea for real in a different story instead of like putting it in here where it, it as was pointed out, he doesn't interact. Like, this this tribunal ship doesn't interact with anybody else. Maybe he had like plans for a sequel, and and I don't know. This is only the second Simic I've ever read, other, along with Waystation, which I read in Eric's group a while back, mm-hmm. uh, Jesse. But um, like, it was cool. Like, it's a neat idea. Like, it's a definitely a neat idea. But I felt like because it was sort of a sideshow, it both distracted from the main novel and the main storyline. And also, like, I didn't feel like it resolved at all. It was just sort There's of no like, resolution. <laughs> right. I, it's just sort of like in there. And so I just didn't feel that it belonged. I'm not I didn't dislike it on its own accord, but I disliked it for this book as not really having anything to do with it. I guess given Shakespeare in the title and like the, the allusion to like the chorus type of thing, or maybe since there's three, the weird sisters from mm-hmm. Macbeth. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank God I'm not in a theater. I can say that word out loud. Um, like, therefore I, like I can see maybe that's what he was going for. Like these are the weird sisters and they did seem a little prescient, Yeah, but not really so much as to really feel like well, it. They're not, gen- like they're not gendered right though. That doesn't matter. Philosophically, also that raises the, the, the main theme of the book, which is why are the people there? Like, why does he need to be there? If you have an intelligent ship, why are any of them on the planet? It's it's a desolate, pointless place to be. It, the, the whole question of the book is why why are we here? Mm-hmm. And that that raises the question for him: Why does he go on the ship at the end? Why does the ship need him? Why does he need the ship? Um, yeah, it's a philosophical. Sure. It wasn't a desolate planet, though, if I recall. Like it was actually like the the planet that was paradisical and could support life. It was just boring, <laughs> right? I don't yeah. like. They like didn't want to be there. All this different weird life, the 
these different monsters were being kept there, which that also sort of came out of nowhere at the end. But like, I, I didn't think it was desolation so much as like, or, which, which actually reminds me, I think it was, I think it's, I just listened to one of your podcasts with Eric, Jesse, where they go, where the guy like star Robin doesn't want to leave the planet or mm. whatever, because mm. he, he goes to paradise, but he doesn't want to stay there. So that was sort of an interesting reminder of like paradise sucks. So don't believe in Jesus because heaven's going to suck too, or what? I don't know. But. Yeah, it's a philosophical novel, which is, it's difficult to pull off. Now, if you think about, like, I didn't know all this at the time I read it the first time. I just thought, wow, amazing. It's like, I, I liked the book. I remember liking the book and thinking, wow, you can, I didn't know any of this was possible. Um, but it's, uh, it's an, also, of what kind of philosophical novel? It's an existential philosophical novel, right? It's all about what am I doing here? <laughs> what is my purpose? And, you know, uh, so uh, it seems like, um, where, uh, I want to say Elaine, I believe it's mm-hmm. spelled with yeah, a Y. That is right. Right? Yes, it's Elaine. E-L-A-Y-N-E, yeah. just like the Elaine and Robert Jordan's books. Uh-huh. Yeah. So when she shows up, um, she's got a rose uh, tattooed on her breast. And the scene oh, is, God. he says, uh, oh, he's looking at it and she's saying like, uh, finally, <laughs> that's what it's there for. Yeah. Right? I cringe so hard. At really? That. I okay. felt like there's so much good philosophy in this book, right? Where like he does talk about like our interaction with nature, like it was very mm-hmm. environmental, like carnivore is disgusting. And like, she can't even believe that people, you know, eat, you know, eat meat anymore. And yet here she is, she shows up in shorts and in cowboy white cowboy boots with a gun on her hip and no top. <laughs> and then she's just like, Oh, finally somebody looked at my boobs. And then later she's like, it's like yeah. did you want to just like, did you just want to sleep with me? Cause you know, we're people and we're lonely. Yep. Like this is where like, to me, I can get it. When you're reading this at 12, you're like, this is awesome. <laughs> naked chicks with I- tattoos on their boobs. But like it, that was where I was like, Okay, right now it's adolescent fantasy. Like, and the, up to that, like the rest of the book, again, I think is pretty high level, but like, that was like the part where I was like, well, that's just all the kids who read this were set back in their misogyny, you know, (laughs) like their misogyny and looking, objectification of women was absolutely reinforced. Um, I totally disagree. I didn't even, I didn't even remember that scene from, the book the oh. first time I read it, so I'm sure I read it and just it, you know oh. had some thing. It's very uh, non-sexual, even though it is a sexual. No, scene. no, it, no, just just Jesse, no, it, no. It, <laughs> Let me finish my <laughs> thought, Paul. Okay, okay. I said it's very non-sexual for a very sexual scene, and when later she's saying uh, when we uh, sleep together, you can pretend I'm your old girlfriend. And she, he says, no, I won't. I'll sleep with you. Absolutely. But I'm not going to pretend you're my dead girlfriend who died a thousand years ago and a day ago. So this is, I, I think it's a very mature, uh, Clifford C. Mac. And he's, he's playing with some science fiction tropes, certainly the blaster, right on the hip. Um, and, uh, you know, the description of the body, we don't get much description of anything in this book. It's very, uh, the planet is, uh, nondescript essentially, right? We get some emeralds here and there. Um, I think he's, I think he's playing, uh, very loose 
kind of game. He set up a scenario, as you say, that the, the co- Greek chorus doesn't really do anything. Um, but if you just think about how, how it all doesn't work and it also all does work and it comes away at the end completely unresolved, uh, existentialism doesn't take you anywhere. It just says, this is our, this is our dilemma. And then, uh, Shakespeare, at the end of the book, Shakespeare winks, right? Which is impossible because he well, doesn't he have any he, fucking he, eyebrows. He, he, How does sure he wink? He's sure winks or not. But it, like, it's, that's left ambiguous. So, Jesse, I'm willing to compromise with, with you <laughs> on for a totally sexist, uh, like, objectifying scene about women, our main <laughs> character yeah. is as much of a gentleman as he can be for that scene. Like, but I will, I'm going to have to agree to disagree that like, it's not sexist at all. I don't think so, like, just because you didn't become like, you know, just because <laughs> it didn't influence you in that way, doesn't mean it was like completely unnecessary for her to be topless and completely ridiculous that she's like, well, yeah, that's why I've got it there. You know, and I some, guess if you're walking some women around do topless, like being topless, sure. Though, right? Yeah. Like, Oh yes, but like, so why is that happening in this book? Like, it I just like, think, what did it have to do with anything? Maybe that's is this a free love like, concept? Oh, like, no, it I, just th- they're the last man and the last woman. Just, like, right? I was just like, it was super cringy, and There's I think a, that like a lot of people woke quote unquote woke people these days are going to are going to ban this book <laughs> for that reason. I'm not it's saying not that that's enough. right. Yeah, I mean, but right, fair. But like, you know, I'm saying like it just it was gratuitous and unnecessary to my mind. But like, yes, it was it was as tasteful as it could be for what it was. There's a there's a pattern in the book where it starts out really goofy and then it gets really philosophical and serious. It starts out very superficial, describing how carnivore looks and you expect him to behave a certain way based on how he's described in the book. But then he behaves in an opposite way of what your expectations are. Your expectations are subverted with her. It's a similar game that he's playing. He shows her looking some way and describes her this way and then has her act in a different way in order to subvert your expectations. He's being very clever and very sneaky uh, in in his his literary technique. Um, But he's playing with those uh, notions. It's not like they didn't know in 1976 that misogyny and sexism exist. They knew those things. And he's taking those tropes and those cultural prejudices that he knows that readers are going to have, and he's subverting them by sending them down a different channel. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a real interesting, uh, phen- right? You can, these are all fictional characters, right? So it's not like, mm-hmm. uh, we, we know, we can map these on one to one. I think Carnivore is the best character because I agree. His, mo- his motivation is not just to be a carnivore. It's also like he's got some sort of honor ideas. Right, right. right. He's, 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 he's proud warrior race. I mean, he, I mean, I mean, but that doesn't come up right away. Right. No, we'll no, find exactly. Because we could be, because we, uh, like, like, uh, like you was like you were saying like you were saying before the, the, I mean, our first impression is like, Oh, this is a monster, a beast. And he killed an eight Shakespeare. Right. But it turns out, no, he's actually a proud warrior race. He goes around planets hunting the best game and Shakespeare kind of just goaded him into killing him because Shakespeare knew he's going to die. So 
everything we knew about Caliban. I mean, okay. Yeah, I, I kept yep, thinking he's Caliban. Caliban. <laughs> he's Caliban. He is Caliban. That's a good yeah. one. He's Caliban. Well it's, it's absolutely wrong. Because it's funny because he, he's not really Caliban because Caliban has a mom, right? And he's from that place. This is not, he's not from this place. No, and no, he doesn't but, have a mom, not in this story. No, but, 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 make, but he is Caliban, absolutely. He is Caliban. That would make Shakespeare the, the wizard dude in the Tempest. Prospero, yes. Yes, yes. Prospero. and he is not. Whoa. I mean, he kind of is, but he's not, right? Oh, because... no, he absolutely... No, 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 he's dead. No, he's dead. He's absolutely... But what... what how How is Shakespeare's notes and stuff uh, described wrongly as um, to Caliban? Incantations. Mm-hmm. That's... So, no, no, no. Cal- Shakespeare is clearly Prospero. Uh, yeah, kind of. Where's Miranda? See, it doesn't map perfectly, right? It this, doesn't map perfectly, but he's having fun with he's having fun with this and mapping things. But I think things. I think uh, so. What I remembered was that the book was called Shakespeare's Planet, and that I thought Shakespeare was reincarnated on the planet for whatever reason. That's not really the case. I mean, or, you could, or, you could or, think or of it's it a that time way. travel or something. Yeah, it's like it, it's, it's not clear. It's only clear later that he, he calls him Shakespeare. The whoever this person was called him Shakespeare because he had a copy of Shakespeare. That's it. Right. He which so uh, that's when, a go for it, Tommy. Oh no, I, I mean, as to say, like that was one of my first notes. Is like let's talk about the the, the reason it's called Shakespeare's Planet because Shakespeare is sort of like an unimportant character really. I mean, he's, I mean, he's not not important, but he's, we only see him for a few seconds and then mm-hmm. he's just sort of referenced and then his skull talks at some point or whatever. So, I mean, he's there throughout, but like, I was wondering, you know, is it just because it's the the book um, or did we feel like there was more to it that like really Shakespeare is being channeled here? Or is it just like he used that name? Cause obviously oh, Shakespeare is going to get everybody's attention. You're, you're, so your mention of The Tempest is good, and that's not a show that I know as well, so um, I may have missed some of those allusions. We talked about maybe the Weird Sisters or, or kind of the chorus type of thing that you see in some of those types of plays. Um, that so one, that I mentioned one, that, that so has Ariel, your theory, Jesse. Well, it has, that one has Ariel and uh, Caliban, and they're both servants and both... Uh, yeah, like so I know it loosely, and, right? Yeah. Just not well. Like I remember Caliban it's a terrific I get that play. reference. Yeah. And yeah, I mean they're they're shipwrecked, right? So like yes. that also right? makes sense seen? with with what's going mm-hmm. on. So but like let's I'd love to have you guys so, explore that a little bit. Well, last night I was uh I I've been sick for like five days. As you can oh, probably tell okay. from my my yeah. nose and throat sounds. Um uh, so I've I I've, I've been on more uh passive mode which i'm not a fan of i'm not a fan of like i've i've if if one was looking very carefully you see oh geez jesse doesn't have a good morning tweet every day <laughs> it's because i'm like sick you know so um i, I just thought you were busy busy with your mom on vancouver i'd Island. love to have been busy uh, busy i mostly just have a, i uh, part of the book i was listening to i like i missed when elaine showed up I missed it because I, I I'm pretty sure I had a, like I've had a fever <laughs> for several days. Oh, and and, and, and messed up your oh yeah yeah yeah. Um, so I, I, I missed parts of it, um, and had to scramble around to try and fix fix it. Even though I I, I didn't like fall asleep or anything, I just like my brain was hallucinating. In any case, 
Um, one of the things I saw was um, at the beginning of that uh, movie uh, we were talking about in the pre, pre-chat, the Vintage Season movie, there's a, a trailer for uh, Orson Welles' Othello. Um, and that's a black and white adaptation uh, for the sure. film of Othello. And uh, it's I do a lot of... Um, Shakespeare with my students because he's really funny and also they have to do it in school sometimes and he has great vocab. But, um, one of the things I always explain to my students or when we're reading the Tempest, for example, is he doesn't have any special effects. The only special effects Shakespeare has are his words. There, there's no, you know, uh, laser beams or, you know, jumping off cliffs or, you know, motorbikes. <laughs> there's nothing to make things exciting so he has to do it with words and i think that's what we get in this book but in othello the trailer for othello one of the major props is desdemona's uh handkerchief (laughs) right this is something if you're a touring company of actors you can't bring uh, you know everything in the planet with you you just have to use what what stuff you got right and so the this very small piece of cloth uh, waved by a man pretending to be a woman um, becomes the central focus of a story. Why is that? It's because Shakespeare is, it's argued in this book, and I've seen it argued elsewhere, a philosopher. He's a philosopher of the human condition. He uses historical stories and comedic stories and uh, tragic stories to tell us about ourselves, right? So what, what's about it? What's going on with Othello? Well, as men and women, we're jealous. We're jealous of, uh, our potential to cheat. Um, we're jealous of other people's power. Uh, we are fatally flawed. If you start looking at the tragedies like Macbeth or whatever, right? Um, what do you got here? Um, it, it sounds like we've all read some C-Mac before. And it struck me when I read uh, Waystation, um, and obviously I'd read other stuff before that, that C-Mac is actually not interested in conflict at all. He's a, he's the opposite of conflict. He, he People read stories, is, and they tell me, uh, stories are about conflict, Jesse. And I'm like, have you read C-Mac? Because <laughs> there's almost no conflict. And when they ha- when it happens, it's usually diffused immediately. And that's what we have here, right? Every time something uh, of a threat turns up, it's immediately diffused. And then we're left with the, huh, aren't we in this, in this discourse now? Aren't we uh, where we are now? Uh, so you've got a carnivore who uh, has a human friend. And the human friend says to the carnivore, eat me. <laughs> and the carnivore says, well, I, you probably won't taste very good. But <laughs> since you are my friend, I'll eat you to the last drop. And then the friend says, don't gag on me. <laughs> and the carnivore says, I would never gag on you, sir. <laughs> Why does he do that? Because that's his nature. C-Mac is the opposite of a conflict maker for conflict's sake. He can't do, uh, let's set up, uh, let's um, uh, do a straw man enemy. Anytime he presents anything of, a, of what could be perceived as a conflict, he diffuses it as a potential for conflict. And that's extraordinary. 
it's 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 what makes him different from almost everybody else. You know, when Heinlein does a book, he sets up the worst straw man characters, and I hate him for that. I hate his straw manning. I hate it so much. C Mac does the opposite. He never straw mans. He he'll play it for fun. Uh, but uh, this is kind of a Philip K. Dick book more than any other author. If you're trying to compare it to things, um, but it's it's probably stronger, more strongly plotted than most Philip K. Dick novels. So that th- those are my thoughts about why this book is so weird and also pretty good, even though it's not great. Yeah, I mean, I will say, like, despite my complaints about like some some major issues. Um, especially with what I would call the sexism, which I mean, is sex and misogyny is very common in, in Shakespeare. Yeah, um, kind of. like I won, I think that was a little more common in the time, you know? Um, so I give, I give a grain of salt for that, but also like, look, I mean, his writing is, is not bad. The, the, the story is compelling. I'm, I was interested to find out what yeah, happened good next. Morning. And I, and I was impressed that carnivore ended up being, a more noble character oh, and having and getting exactly what he wanted. Yeah, yeah, you're right. He's absolutely the hero, which is a, a maybe a good segue into our our main character. What is it, Carter or whatever? Carter Horton. Yeah. Horton, and, Horton, Horton, which is funny because I work for a company named Horton, so I just kept going like like, like what, Carter Horton, like ah, ah, I kept having brain skits. Yeah. I kept Horton. thinking of Horton here's a who. Uh, well, well, when I, when I interviewed when I interviewed later. for the for the job for the company I work for, I asked I I said the I said that to the desk clerk Horton oh, no. here's a who and and he just looked at me like I had three heads and I had no idea what I was talking about. So I was like, I guess you don't. I thought to myself, I guess they don't read Seuss here, so. I, don't, I didn't. Bring I don't, most people don't read it all, Paul. That's the real. Yeah, truth, I know right? that. Yes. Yeah, I, I I wouldn't have said it because I thought they would have heard it a million you times, know. and I hate to be repetitive, you know. No, no, quite to the contrary. No, they had heard it not at all. No. And then no. I'll never like, that? <laughs> forget. I was I was working as a telemarketer, and you know when you're telemarketing, like names pop up on the sure. screen, and you read the name. And I got uh, a woman. Her name was. Gail Neiman. So it was like Neil Gaiman in huh. reverse because yeah. the, the Gail, the, the Gaiman was spelled like Gail. It was spelled yeah, like Gaiman and Neil. Yeah. So, so I, I said, uh, oh my goodness, your name is like Neil Gaiman in reverse. And she said, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Lady like, don't protest too much. How could you make it through life with that name and never hear? Because most people don't read. That's the true answer to all of these questions, right? Um, (laughs) The fact that we all read this book together is incredibly rare, right? Incredibly rare. Most people don't read it all. (laughs) So, yeah, you can go your whole life with the name like Neil Gaiman in reverse and most, since most people don't read, and most people don't read Neil Gaiman, <laughs> most people won't say to her, "Your name is Neil Gaiman in reverse." Still, not even encounter it once. It's <sighs> it, it, it's well, look, most people most people don't know who Shakespeare is. That's this is true, right? Sad, but probably true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, but uh, you know. Uh, 
doesn't mean you can't be a human being. It just means you can't experience some of the uh, fun things that humans can do. But going going back to this book, the the time tunnels and the fact that we time and space tunnels actually, and the fact that we have groups of people going through them and exploring them, Elaine being one of them, made me think of uh, more gain from uh, C.J. Cherry's novels, where you where it's where Morgan's basically the last of these groups of people who are going through the gates and closing them behind her, where they're not closing, they're exploring, but there's the same sort of mystery that this book never really explores, like who built the who built the tunnels, why did they build the tunnels, what are the tunnels really for, and what can what what does it all mean? Um it also occurred to me that having faster and faster and light uh tunnels means that you can probably you can uh break causality, but that's not something that Simex interested in in this novel, whereas in the Cherry novels, that's why they, they're closing gates, because the gates actually can wind up causing problems with the whole universe. But the whole idea of, the whole idea of Stargates, and I, referencing, referencing the movie and the TV show, kind of breaks the, breaks, breaks the universe if you think about it too hard. Cherry did, but Simex not interested in that. He just wants that as a way to have Caliban on, I mean, I keep calling Kamek carnivore on this planet and Elaine on this planet and, um, the, the, uh, the, uh, other, the other creatures that show up on the planet. It's, 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 the tunnel felt too much more, too much like a plot device and not, and something they could have explored, but didn't. Um, this also, this is a late Simex. Yeah, it's this a setting. This is his last. It's a setting. Is this uh, his, is this Simex's last book? I don't know. It might be. No, it um, could because be, because he was writing into the 80s. I'm pretty okay, sure. Okay, I thought he was only writing something. Okay. Because it also made me think of the last Jack Williamson book, because Jack Williamson being a very old science fiction author, which was The Stonehenge Gate, which is, again, about portals to other worlds. We find, we find uh, The main characters find a portal in the Sahara Desert and go through to other worlds and get wrapped up in all sorts of shenanigans. So I kept thinking of that book as well. Um, so it's a setting. I think that we have to think of this as a, as a stage. Shakespeare's planet, all the earth's a stage, right? And all men merely players. Players. In this case, uh, the, the stage is very much, it's like the island in the Tempest. It's, it's like, uh, the, um, location of Hamlet's house <laughs> in Hamlet. Uh, what's the place called? Elsinore Castle. Elsinore, right? Denmark. It's just a, it's a it's a setting on which the characters can you know strut around, and then we get some characters introduced, and we get a lot of speculation. But the characters are self aware in the same way that a lot of Shakespeare characters are. Um, there's always the the plays the thing and will catch the uh, conscience of the king. Um, That's mm-hmm. correct. This is. Uh, why Shakespeare is so uh, universal, and <coughs> excuse me, I, I think he's also like um, the the Shakespeare of this book's title. He's God in a certain sense. He is the God of this planet. Um, he's set the characters rolling, and then he winks himself off the screen at the end of the book. It's not a perfect book because I think he is. Um. He's just better at short stories than he is at novels. Um, 
I think, you know, most good science fiction is short story length or novelette length. And uh, this is, yeah, it's a good book. And uh, I did find a tweet. um, Somebody called Max D. Boost. Probably not uh, great. But in uh, 2013, this person said, Clifford D. C. Max, Shakespeare Planet is good. Succinct introduction to mysticism for the young adult. I'm not mysticism? Sure. Yeah, I'm not sure mysticism is the right word. I think it's it's existentialism. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Yeah. But it, as a kid, you don't have these vocab words, right? You don't have, um, you don't know what existentialism is. Nobody talks about it. Um, you don't, nobody talks about mysticism. Um, but even the word mystery, you know, we just think of it as what Scooby-Doo solving. Um, but it has, uh, deeper ramifications and deeper meanings. And so, um, when I see people on Twitter or elsewhere saying, you know, this was my favorite book as a kid. I read it 13 times. I'm like, wow. Um, it's not that good a book, but it's a good introduction to science fiction. If you haven't read anything else, because it has a lot of the things you would think are important, like planets and carnivores and uh, uh, gal- uh, robots and galaxy gates and um, the the brain computer interface that's um, in uh, Horton, uh, so you can talk to the ship through telepathy. That's mm-hmm. um, it's not something I normally think of, but I'm reading an article written by Eric and somebody else. Um, proofreading it for them and uh it's all about brain computer interfaces yeah they're everywhere they're even in this book right um i i've mentioned also that john scalzi book uh, old man's war that has a brain computer interface and when you're reading old man's war you say hey this is fun right because it's got a brain computer interface he is interacting with he calls it asshole that's hilarious right we get it it's fun mm. shakespeare's planet has all that stuff and it's easy breezy because he's a good writer and mm-hmm. it's, it's thoughtful. It doesn't have uh, a nice through line plot. It doesn't end the, you know, in a cascade of, uh, novas. <laughs> um, it sort of puts us back where we started. Um, but we feel like we experienced something. At least uh, that's probably how I felt about it the first time I read it. And I, so I can see why it's some people's favorite favorite novel. Um, I think they pro- should probably read more. <laughs> but, well, uh, well, well, it's 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 not matter. I, I mean, I mean, people have a continue to read. Well, 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 well I mean, I I think it's true that readers and we are all readers have a special bond with the stuff that made us readers. So, you know, yeah. I and it, even if we've read objectively much better things even by the same author there's still there's still that kind of lodestone attraction to uh to grip with to, to come to grips with that and have affection for it. i mean um okay so so i so jesse we were, we were speaking of Heinlein before so i did a thing and i reread time enough for love why <laughs> why why wasn't why, for me why wasn't for no, this wasn't podcast. For you. No, it wasn't for a podcast. Um, it's, it's, it's for a book review that's in the works. Um, okay. The reason why, um, first of all, I was asked to, asked to, and the second was, it was one of the first science fiction books I tried to read. I mean, I was given The Martian Chronicles, I was given iRobot, The Hobbit, 
But when I got access to my older brother's um, bookshelf, the cover of Time Enough Love looked interesting. And yeah. at age 11, Cover's I so tried important. to read it. And it didn't work out at well to me. But it kept – it was stuck in my brain for – it's been stuck in my brain ever since. The, I mean, I, I've, I've read it twice since, but it's like – it's kind of like – it's always been there. Yeah, when you're young, you're a sponge in a way that you're not as an adult, right? So I, even right. even if so, so, even if it's not uh, perfect, um, right? It's it, it, it can it's ab- kind of lodged in my brain forever. Yeah. yeah. And 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 I and I wrote eighteen hundred words trying to trying to come to terms with this book. It was a very very strange experience reading it again and trying to think about my younger self and my present self and so. Why? That's why people might think this book is their favorite book or their favorite Simak book because you know it impressed on their brain and that impression does not go away any very easily if at all. And I don't fault people for. It. I mean, I think this is weak Simak compared to something. But then again, I've read much better Simaks. Always balancing the Simak for me. I mean, mm. I mean, some parts of this book really frustrated me. The the the, the Greek chorus. Um, the fact that okay, Ling comes and it looks like. And and then suddenly all oh, the time travels look like oh nope see you goodbye and it's like but and okay so the guy's getting on the ship but to do what and to go where it's 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 never really said I mean I mean the rest of his crew is dead all he has is a robot and a ship and his mission is long gone he can't go back to Earth so he's just gonna get on a ship and do what why isn't he just I mean in this case like okay why doesn't he just go and explore the time tra- tunnels or something it's like why are you getting on a ship to go to who knows where in, in, in a system that might kill you because, well, on your ship. So it's like, it made no sense and it frustrated me no end. Hmm. See, that's the existentialism. Yeah. Now. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm, I'm not big on existentialism. I can it's, tell. It's the role that he's playing. <laughs> you can tell. It's I'm what he's got to do. <laughs> it's not a sense of duty or honor or anything. It's Perfect. just his role. It's who he is. This yeah. is. Mm-hmm. That's what why we like Carnivore so much, is he knows what he he knows who he is and what he needs to do, right? And even when he's annoying other people, he he knows who he is and what he needs to do. It may not always manifest, you know, in this situation. He may not be acting like he he will act, but we like him because he knows who he is and he knows what he needs to do. Um, whereas we're more much more like Horton. We don't know who we are and we don't know what we need to do. And hence, that's very unsatisfactory, right? L- like the book. Um, but, uh, this guy was born in 1904, right? So he's, he's like from 200, uh, 120 years ago, basically. Um, and he's writing some, you know, very traditional SF. Uh, it's in that line with all the previous stuff, uh, before it in 1976. But it, it's also, you know, this book could have been written today. It would be slightly different. However, you know, the details would be slightly different. But I think the, uh, some of the details, like, did stand, I, I didn't remember them until I read it again in this book, uh, for this week was, um, like the, uh, robot can program itself. He can be an engineer. He can be a cook. He can be this. He can be that, right? Um, that's, that's cool, right? The, the, the reprogrammable and, and swappable modules. 
the modules. That 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 that's that's an idea I could get behind. Absolutely, that's yeah, that's a really simple. good concept. It. And uh, if you think about it, it sort of fits with the actors on the stage, right? Uh, in our in our time, we a man plays many parts. <laughs> sometimes he's the exactly. young maiden. Sometimes he's the old man. <laughs> sometimes he's the dowdy cook. Sometimes he's the carnivore. And uh, so, yeah, it's it can be totally dissatisfactory, I think. Uh, and uh, the book, you know, like it only has like three point six or something you know, uh, on Goodreads. Can't everything on Goodreads is three point something, as far as I can tell. <laughs> it's it, 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 it's the regression to the mean problem. Um, yeah, uh, but, this is out of five, right? Yeah, yeah. but but what yeah, I mean. But what, I mean, what, I don't what do you disagree what, with that? That makes it like a seventy-two out of a hundred, right? Like, <laughs> right? You know, that's pretty. I mean, that's actually, it, yeah. If we do, if we put it on a grading scale, then that's a C minus. But if we put it on a like <laughs> a, a like on a scale of seventy-two out of a hundred, I mean, that's clearly well ahead of the average. And it, it it is an above average book. His language is good, right? He brings up things. He brings up. He talks about human beings as locusts, which made me think of like the Matrix and like. He talks about us in, in the environment yeah. a lot. In yeah, here. A lot of he talks about a gun. I really like the scene with the gun. Like her gun is a tool, and but his mm-hmm. gun is just a a weapon. Right. You know, like all of these mm-hmm. different the concepts that he brings up are solid. Like so, like again, like I do think it's a good book. It had some parts that made me cringe and that made <laughs> me think like, oh, this book was written, you know, before I was born, and um, not by much actually, but. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's from that kind of a time where you, like, it's totally fine to just, like, have, again, like, if this were, like, a big book in the public eye, like, people would have a problem with yeah, Elaine, some, some the way that would. she's portrayed. I don't really care, but also, like, I wonder what he was going for, and whatever he was going for, it didn't happen for me, right? <laughs> I was just like, ew. Well, you know, there's, there's biker chicks, right? There's girls who like, uh, I mean, in in essence, what does a tattoo say? You got a tattoo. It's not about you, the you tattoo. Have a t- you I have, have a tattoo, tattoos. right? Yeah. What does a the tattoo says? It says I'm a, it's, it's an embodied being. Meaningful. I'm an embodied yeah. being. I have a body, right? Um, mm-hmm. I was looking uh, before I came to the island. Before I got uh, sick, I was at the thrift shop, and I found I love going to the thrift shop because you see all sorts of weird things there. One of the things I found was when I figured out what it was. Turned out it was a like a microscope, uh, video microscope. It, it has like a little handle. You plug in a a little thing with LED lights, and and there's a video screen, and uh, you can like zoom in on your arm. Uh, that's what I was using it for. I was like looking at the cells on my arm in real time, and I was like, "Well, that's interesting." And then I saw, "Oh, I'm sweating." I could see like little uh, puddles of liquid coming out of the skin and then evaporating. Um, that's not normally how we think of ourselves. Yes, we know we sweat, but like I could see hairs and then broken hairs, uh, you know, where it had broken mm-hmm. off. And, and, uh, and then I, I did on my palm and I saw like, what's that little, you know, silvery thing. I was like, that's a piece of metal embedded in your palm. <laughs> right. I'm like, wow. Um, we don't normally think of ourselves that way. We normally think of ourselves sort of as macro creatures, right? <laughs> yes, we get haircuts and we have to go to the bathroom, but we're macro creatures. We're, we're uh, you know, very cerebral. 
but we're also biological organisms. And I think he's going for everything in this. So he's, he's got uh, a woman saying, I am a sexual creature. Um, the man is not, a, there's no sexual creatures until Elaine shows up, right? It's just a carnivore, right? And then in reaction to the woman showing up, the toplessness, that's like, no, you're a sexual creature too. Um, I don't think of it as, uh, like, I don't think of it as, uh, misogynist at all. I just think it's, it's, uh, dealing with the, uh, bringing up the topic <laughs> of sexuality. I, I don't think it was a misogynist in intent. Right, I agree. With I'm sure you. some people was, will that's agree. Totally, what he's trying to do. I'm just saying. I'm just saying he did not. For me, he did not pull it off. And I think yeah, for the most book people, doesn't work perfectly. He, they are going to look at it very differently. And and you know, the, their perception doesn't matter. And your enjoyment of the book is not affected by my feelings about it, right? So I think that's yeah. totally fine. I just felt like, it, like, and you were just talking about. It. He's trying to hit on so many things, and to an extent especially the things that resonated with me, I was glad they were in there, even if I wish he would explore them further. Mm-hmm. The concept of human beings is locusts, just the way that we consume. It's or very the, scattershot. The, the, he the, does the everything. Ship. He doesn't, he doesn't. It, yeah. I think, it. I think it supports my, my point that he tried to fit, you know, I'm now going to say 20 pounds of shit into a, a five pound bag. <laughs> Uh, I, don't think that, I don't think any of it's shit. I think it's it's all well, good no, fertilizer. That's, 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 no, it's I, that's, the, that's just the phrase. I don't mean yeah. shit in a ne- part. You know, I'm sorry, I'm swearing too. No, I don't mean it in the negative context. Worry. That's just that. That's just the um, the aphorism, right? Yeah. Twenty pounds of fine. Twenty pounds of diamonds in a five pound <laughs> emeralds. 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 emeralds in a five pound bag. It's just right. Like so much of what he wanted to get in there spilled over. So we only have a quarter of what I think he was trying to present. And there, as a result, we get a weird look at it because it's incomplete because so, those, you know, those emeralds can't be made into the, the, the beautiful crown or tiara that they were <laughs> supposed to be part of. Yeah. I'm not, I've been reading a lot of old issues of heavy metal magazine that oh, I, yeah. that I, and awesome. um, I don't know, you know, these are comics. They're by people like Mobius mm. and all those famous 80s, 70s comic book artists. And there's alien planets and there are topless women on and alien robots. planets. That yep. is definitely a trope of this uh, genre. Um, but very they don't French. explore <laughs> that trope very deeply in heavy metal magazine. It's no. just there because it's expected to be there. I don't think that that's what happened in C-Mac. I think he knew it was a trope and he put it there because it was a trope, but then he, he subverted it and explored it a little bit by giving the woman a personality beyond being topless. Yeah. And her personality had to do with a sense of duty uh, towards her um, her not religion, but uh, her cultural, um, the idea that she has to explore and visit other planets and map the tunnels and that, that uh, ideology that she has, uh, that she's very loyal to, uh, and, and the conflict between that and her feelings for Carter. Um, I, I think she, he's taking that trope, but then developing, subverting it by developing it a little further than what you would see in, in Heavy Metal Magazine. Yeah, it's this is a be a very boring heavy metal story because there's a lot of standing around talking about what they're perceiving <laughs> rather than just perceiving it, um, and then you know uh, 
the, the Mobius look is also like it pervades most of the story. There's a lot of nudity, um, and it's a lot of presentation and a lot of sizzle and not a lot of thought. Whereas I think this is, have you ever thought about this? <laughs> and then they think okay. about it for a minute and I said, wow, no, I hadn't thought about that. And then, yeah, they think about another thing. I'm like, wow, have you ever thought about that? Oh, no, I never considered that. Wow. <laughs> so I, I think it does make a good introduction to science fiction. Um, a lot of people probably would disagree with that today. But uh, it, it sounds like, Jonathan, you, uh, you appreciated what he was, he was putting down. I think it, I think it can't be a lot better uh, for what he, he's, I think he did a good job for what he's trying to do. But I don't think a lot of people will like what he's trying to do, which is make an existential science fiction novel. Uh, the so, stuff, um, yeah, go for it. Sorry, go on. I'll let you finish. I was just going to say, um, uh, when, when, uh, they start talking about magic, right? It doesn't turn the book into a, a fantasy novel, right? When they start talking mm-hmm. about magic, even though there's a dragon in the story, it doesn't turn it into it. It's because hey, it's a completely naturalistic dragon. Yes, but, uh, but, you know, um, the magic but is... Also, but, but also goes to the whole whole uh, whole Tempest thing. I mean, is yeah. Prosper really a wizard, wizard or <laughs> not? I mean, some, some, I mean, some of the film adaptations say he are, and others, yeah. you know, others have him as a charlatan. So it's like, which, where's the truth there? Yeah, I think, I think when people try and interpret Shakespeare, um, which you have to do, right, uh, for adaptations, they usually get him wrong. They usually get him wrong. Um, <laughs> because they focus on like, like, let's eliminate all this aspect here that really undercuts the, the thing we're going for. Because Shakespeare has it both ways. Every, every opportunity possibly can. He's entertaining the low class people and he's edifying the low class people. Um, even though he's making them, uh, you know, subject to all these high class situations. Uh, he respects his, his low class audience. Um, and I think in the same way, C-Mac, uh, is why it worked for me as a kid. He's respecting my, my, uh, low class brain. <laughs> I like robots. <laughs> I like monsters. <laughs> and then he introduces, uh, what are we all doing here, man? What's the purpose? If emeralds have no value. What am I gonna do? Rocks. <laughs> That's right. Thank you for thank you for taking my my Matrix reference and and giving us the Neo. The, what was that the, Neo? The I Neo voice. I don't know. I, mean, I, I, I felt was. like that was totally oh. kind of. Oh man, oh. auto kung fu. What are we doing here? No, you know yeah, like, no, uh, I, w- I was That's... telling my students um, basically uh, when I uh, I guess we're, it's because we did recent Paul. Uh, I don't know, Jonathan, were you on, um, yeah, the last week? Which one? Uh, yes. Yes. Was it 1976 movie? What was it called? Yeah, 76, Logan's Run. Yeah. Logan's, Logan's Run. Run. Yeah, it's, it's Logan's Plato's Run. Republic, right? <laughs> um, it's the, um, it's yeah, the, it's, 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 play, it, yeah, it's Plato's Cave. Yeah. It's complete with getting dazzled when you So 1999, they redo the movie as, uh, uh, the Neo, Matrix movie. It's the same thing. Or, and I said, I said, you know, there's a really good one, uh, nobody talks about it from the same year. It's called The 13th Floor. It's, uh, it's, I talk about it all the time. Yeah, but I, 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 like I, the 13th I, floor. I mean, how many sequels has, has that got, Paul? <laughs> Zero, because, yeah. because, I, because, I, because the, um, 
the actor is a wet blanket doesn't really hold up doesn't hold up to uh the rest of the cast or I the don't plot. even know who the actor is exactly uh, yeah. my point yeah it doesn't um, matter so um it's not an action movie, though, right? Uh, whereas The Matrix is an action movie. This is I mean, the opposite there are action, of action there, are, there are action scenes in the 13th floor, but there's, yeah. it's most, it's most, there's not a lot of action to it, no. no. So just to bring it back to, to the book, there's a theme in a lot of new wave science fiction, and C-Mac does it really well in every book that I've read of his, which is this uh, conflict between uh, nostalgia for the past mm and uh, anxiety about the future. Mm -hmm. And you get that in Shakespeare's first monologue in the book. I think it's his first, where he's talking about, you know, before we had a home, we knew where we lived. Yeah. Now we're dispersed across all of these planets, and we have no baseline and no uh, no, refer no common reference points. Right. Um, and that really, I think it, it hit home for me because like the idea is very, it's, it's an idea out of Americana yeah. um, where there's this uh, American past, which is kind of fantasy. And then, you know, the present, which is kind of scary in the future, which is just unthinkable. And uh, you got that in 76, you see that in thinking today and you see it in the book. And that really seemed like a metaphor uh, for me uh, of this like American train, train of thought. Um, yeah, which, yeah, he's which, a very American writer, you know. Which really, I, I think, you know, it, it spoke to me in this and in um, and in all of the books of his that I've read. Um, in Way Station, you know, you had that with the whole Civil War angle, and um, in uh, Choice of Gods, I don't know if anybody else here has read that. I've not. Um, I've Choice of Gods is one I've not read yet. It's really, really, really weird. Uh, but it's basically like the future, but it's like this kind of like suburban town. But like the Native Americans have kind of had a resurgence and they're robots and like the... He, he loves robots. He loves yeah. them. And in a, the, in a way that Asimov doesn't. Asimov uses robots. Uh, C-Mac loves robots. But the uh, the robots are people are too. Kind of like in this like no yeah, man's sure land between like the Indians and the robots. Um, it's it's very strange. It has to do with religion. Um, I I couldn't explain it. But um, it's a very weird book. But uh, they all have this theme where there's this American past which is you know concrete, the present which is very uncertain, and then the future which is something to be scared of. Which, uh, I wanted to I point it. out that they're, they're almost exactly contemporaries, Heinlein and C-Mac. They both died in 88. Uh, no. uh, C-Mac was born in 1904, Heinlein 1907, right? So, uh, and, and yet, we don't think of them, you know, other than both being American writers, we don't think of them as exactly identical. Most people who, uh, don't, don't like Heinlein probably have no opinion about C-Mac. He's just not on the scale, you know. They didn't impact his life or their lives. Um, he didn't write a lot of juveniles or anything like that. But they um, they didn't write for the same kind of magazines either. Um, C-Mac starts earlier. He's like 31. And Heinlein's in, I want to say, late 30, like 39, but really he's, he's 40, uh, 41, 42. Um, 
No, no, that's that's right. Highlander was born in 07. His he he his first story is like 40, so he's yeah. he's 30. Yeah, so yeah, that's what I'm saying. Is he starts a little okay. later, like about 10 years later at science fiction. Then, but C-Mac was also like a newspaper man. That was his his day job. Science fiction was, you know, uh, a place to get extra money. Um, but if you think about, like, he was he was in Wonder Stories. He was in Amazing. He was in a lot of sort of the fantasy magazines later on. Um, but you don't see a lot of him in Astounding or, uh, you know, Unknown or that sort of thing. They were sort of operating in different circles. And yet you can sort of see that there's the same age in the the... The, not nostalgia exactly, but the, uh, reference points to rural, uh, countryside housing <laughs> and, uh, the landscape, um, which shows up in both. But C-Mac, um, he is, uh, he's more of the Bradbury style. He's got, um, uh, I, I, I was talking about, uh, Twitter yesterday, I guess it was, uh, Bradbury and Jack Finney, right? Sort of the, um, uh, nostalgia. That Circus of Dr. Lau is, mm-hmm. that's a great book. Okay. Um, that's I, Finn, right? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I, 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 I will say I was for, thinking, yeah, I, for Jack Finney, I'm just thinking like he had a bunch of short stories that are time travel stories that go, you know, or, yeah, and C Mac. The Dow Lau is Charles Finney. That's oh, a different, that, that's a different Finney. Uh-huh. Oh, sorry. My uh-huh. bad. No worries. I, w- I will say for the C-Mac versus Heinlein comparison, mm-hmm. what I like about C-Mac is I don't feel like he's talking down to me. No, he's not. Feel like no. Yeah, Heinlein lectures time. Yeah, exactly. Like it feels he fe- it feels like C-Mac you takes your low hand people right, and he's just like he's like, hey, here's some ideas to explore. And again, it's some of the ones that he explored they didn't hit they didn't rub me necessarily the right way, but like. I, I like where he's going. Again, I think a lot of what we, what he wanted to do f- didn't fit into the bag, right? I also think, I mean, his book is also really short, so I yeah, almost wish six and a half hours. that he would, I, yeah, yeah, I wish he would have made it longer. Um, you know, I listened to the first four or five while I was working outside, but I had that paperback that we mentioned, and so mm-hmm. I, I ended up actually reading the last bit, um, because I was somewhere where I had a book and it made more sense to not have headphones in. Um, and ignore everybody who was around, but I could still kind of read my book. Um, and I, it was fun to get both. I, I did really, if everybody listened to the version that, that Jesse sent, um, uh, sent me at least, yeah. it, like I liked the, the voice of Carnivore. I mm-hmm. was impressed with, like, they, yes, I think that it was, <laughs> you know, like it was pretty, yeah. it was He's pretty the good. Main character, like, yeah. it, but it, what was interesting is it, it helped to establish him as this like stupid brute. And of course, that was the, that was in the way that he talked and everything else. And then, you know, again, whether or not Shakespeare was being truthful about like it, that he, you know, he was in danger and all this stuff, or or you know, he was getting ready to kill somebody just to to add one more kill to his list. Like he accomplishes his goal in a noble way. And so, whether or not he was a noble savage or not, which I guess maybe Caliban is a bit of that as well. Yeah, uh, it was just. It was cool how he resolved it, and it was unexpected. The narrator um, was David it, Drummond, by the way. Ooh, I think he okay. did a pretty good job, especially with Caliban. 
Uh, uh, sorry, carnivore. Yeah, I I didn't know who Ca- Caliban was. Um, again, it's like uh, I read X Men and then I know who Caliban is. <laughs> no, that's who nice. Caliban is in that book, right? Um, yeah, one of the Morlocks, right? Uh, yeah, some sort of uh, Days of Future Past. Yeah, they're the, the, so they're the, <laughs> the like I believe he is one of the Morlocks, and they're the people who live like under the sewers. Yeah. Or, what, or live in the sewers or whatever, but I mean they're and, uh, and they're they're I like what the Morlocks are, are gross. from X Men as well, right? Obviously, you know them from Wells, right? Yeah. Right, and so well, they took that name from Wells, um, and they made them into the basically the the mutants in in the Marvel universe yeah. that are too ugly to like hide their mutation. Like yeah. Wolverine's kind of on the borderline, you know. Of course, Beast he has like some technology to like fix him up, but like that was their whole deal. They're like. Their mutations have deformed them, yeah. and therefore they hide. They're also the the, the um, ugly mutants in um, in Futurama who live under New New York, right? Um, oh, uh, I, Leela, yeah. Leela thinks, uh, oh, I'm one of them. <laughs> They're too ugly to live on the surface. Um, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's the cool thing about science fiction is the people who read it read old, old books a long time ago. And they aren't just writing. Uh, contemporary, <laughs> what was the line? Was this from you, Jonathan? Um, somebody on Twitter, know. somebody on Twitter quoted it and I'm like, yep, <laughs> that's it. Um, mimetic fiction is, uh, it's about people who are cheating on each other and getting divorces. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I don't write words like mimetic on Twitter. No, it wasn't. Uh, <laughs> you never know. It was, but you know, it's realistic fiction or whatever. It's just about people getting divorces <laughs> and cheating on each other. Like, I don't want to ever read that book ever. <laughs> I read, I read them. They suck. I never want to read them again. You give me a, a guy who's a, only able to I, eat meat and a guy who wants to be eaten <laughs> and I'm good. I'll, I'll take no, that. I'm perfectly fine reading realistic fiction. Uh, one of my favorite books is Bellamy by, uh. Oh, well, that's Montfaucin though. That dude. He doesn't count as realistic fiction. He invented everything. You know, he, he he can do it. Not everybody can do what he can do. I also like uh, The Midnight uh, Bell by uh, Patrick Hamilton. Oh, I don't know that one. It's uh, it's a trilogy, but it's about a, a guy who is he's kind of a young naive guy who works at a bar and wishes he were someplace else. And then it's in London, and then uh, it's social realism. And then a prostitute walks into the bar, and he immediately falls in love with her, but she's <laughs> like a prostitute, and he doesn't really understand what that means, and he just keeps on pursuing her. And that's the first book. The second book is the point of view of somebody else who works at the bar who has a secret crushing him who's a minor character in the first book and the third book is from the point of view of the prostitute okay seems it seems like it's it's long (laughs) it's it's pretty long i think the whole thing is called uh streets under the sky maybe (laughs) is what it's called uh that seems like it's it's referencing something (laughs) i don't know maybe <laughs> I don't Possibly. remember if that's what it's called or if that's like what one of the books mm. is called. Um, yeah, so there there are times when you you know there's a there was um a book by Tom Wolfe called the man a man in full or the man in full, um and that's like a mimetic fiction book. It's about it's about a guy having a midlife crisis, 
Um, and uh, there's another one that's um, uh, who's the guy who wrote The Godfather? Uh, Mario Puzo. Mario Puzo. That's right. So he wrote one. Um, uh, I can't remember what it, it's. A, it's a mimetic fiction book, uh, and it starts off with a guy. I am a master of magic. Uh, he's not. He's just. Um, he's just the author saying I can tell a good story. Um, but it's a really good story and it's well told. Um, but when I finish it, I never want to read one of them again, right? <laughs> because I'm like, oh yeah, you really did entertain me here with this story about a guy who, you know, is having a midlife existential crisis and, uh, he's addicted to gambling and his girlfriend is going to leave him. And like when I'm finished, I never want to read that again <laughs> because even though I liked it, um, there's just no ideas there. It was like, it just a, it's like, uh, some sort of experience. Something you said earlier, Tommy, you said, uh, enjoyment about this book is like, is my, uh, my interpretation shouldn't affect your enjoyment. Like, that's not really how I think of what I'm doing when I'm reading books. Like, it's not really mm-hmm. about enjoyment because there are some books that I really, really enjoy. Um, but I yeah. don't read them. <laughs> right. Because, Maybe appreciation or, yeah, yeah. Or, it's almost or, always or, to know, do whatever. with, it's almost always to do with appreciation because like, yeah. and that's why you can't grade things like, uh, I'm getting this, 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 uh, Philip K. Dick story, a 75 out of a hundred, uh, you know, PKD points because yes, there are stories that are better than others for everybody. Right. Um, yeah. but you have to appreciate what he's doing in the particular story. So for progeny, yeah. it's the, it's probably the best take on uh, autistic children with capes being raised by robots. <laughs> Did yeah, you ever I, read? I, mean, I just meant to say, like, I don't want to yuck. Them, right. You know what I'm saying? Like if, if that's so hard like, to squeak, you know? Yeah. Like it's like, I have, I, some of these things, they bothered me because like, I fear that we're, like in a book that otherwise I feel is relatively enlightened, like I felt like here was something that felt archaic and and sexist, even if in unintentionally, even if the cold goal was to say like here's this like this super like um forward thinking woman who doesn't care, and like maybe that's the society we need to go towards is like where like it's not a big deal that she is not wearing a top. Unfortunately, given the setting, to me it felt that way, and I I feel like we've talked about it too much, and so I I apologize. But <laughs> it's all right. Um, that being said, like I do think that that to me that like it kind of pulled me out of it, right? Like, yeah, yeah. There's no, the certainly. there's the scene in The Empire Strikes Back where Luke goes into the cave and he he's not supposed to take his weapons and he fights him and he and it ends up and it's Vader's in there and he knocks his head off and then it's his own face. Okay, well there's significance to that scene. But it also completely pulls you out of the movie. Uh, anything right? on Dagobah. Like, otherwise, as soon as I, as soon as they cut cut away from Dagobah and then they come back to Dagobah, I'm like, this we're still on this fucking shit planet. Get me out of here. <laughs> well, I but I love Yoda, so like, it's just that scene that bothers I me. See, I don't feel that way about the other scenes. I, I love the, Yoda's philosophy, and now we're no, talking about No, no, it makes so, <laughs> it makes sense when you're a kid. You're listening to, ooh, wise I am. <laughs> I, I'm so, small yet I'm mighty. Like I, when, when, you're, uh, when I when I was judge a, me as by a kid, size to you uh, and that you do not. I, under, I understood that he was he was supposed to be wise, but once you start thinking about it as an adult, you say, you know, 
what Yoda's saying is like he's wrong about everything. He says you shouldn't go help your friends. That's like a cult. <laughs> like your your friends need you. And he says I want to go help my friends. No, your training not complete is <laughs> whatever. Jesse, I feel like this is a conversation that you and I need to have another time because <laughs> I'm gonna. I strongly disagree, but it does not belong in this podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When you're uh, talking about these, you know, things being kind of archaic, I think if you look at the broader history, it's more of a pendulum than, like, uh, things moving in one direction. Like, you look at, like, the court of King Charles II, and you got Rochester's the court poet. He wrote poems like Signor Dildo. Uh, about um, the women, their best friend was this Italian named Signor Dildo, which was just a, a dildo expressed right. in poetic terms. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, they made him a man. You know, yep. Yeah, a personified. Or, mm-hmm. know, so, um, you know, like that was what was popular then in whatever the 1600s when King Charles II, and uh, he had he had other poems that were just as dirty, uh, like a ramble through St. James, like uh, a ramble who fucks who and who does worse, and then it just is gossip about all of the different court people and who they're, you know, you know. But then, like a generation later, you know, you have the the printing press, the birth of the novel, and you got like Roxana. and Roxana is you know one of the first novels, and it's. It's very reserved. It's about a prostitute, but the way it's portrayed is everything's off screen and she gets punished for it. All of the, uh, you know, all and of the. And then Sting wrote a song about it. Yeah. Uh, you know, so you go from one extreme, like this poetic celebration of like dildos, to this other extreme of women being seriously punished for having any sort of, of sexuality. And then. Mm. You know that it gets even more extreme as you go through through English history. I, I totally agree with where, where you're going. I just yeah, I totally agree with where you're going, but I don't think that applies to a woman showing up topless for a few seconds and then being <laughs> like, "Oh, I'm glad you're staring at my my breasts because that's why I put a tattoo there." Like, but again, I I think we we have definitely beaten that horse, and I I mean I like. I, in a sense, I'm proud because I generated discussion. In another sense, I'm sad because I feel like we've like talked about it too much. Like, I, you know, um, like, look again. I'm not trying to condemn the guy for it being in there. I just thought, to me, that was the like the weakest that's, that's part of the novel, the and it also pulled me out of it. Sexual thing I've ever seen in any C-Mac, and it's so tame. It's so tame. I mean, it, it, yeah, it was like it wasn't much. It was just like it was weird. It was another like a, a instance of like, well, why is that there? Just like, a, why is, introducing like, why is a character. Even... This one's female. <laughs> How do we know? She's got memory <laughs> glands. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because Fair we enough. we have uh, 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 you know who we, ha- we haven't talked about is Pond. Mm. Right. right. So right. what's the story right. on right. Pond? <laughs> uh, but I, again, this goes to the the uh, like the undercooked nature of some of this novel is like, we have all these other things and we have pond here, which is this apparently this intelligence that can split itself and wants to go to other planets. And so, so, um, Horton's going to take a, take, take a beaker full of pond with mm-hmm. him. Which and there's a fun line right at the end, right? Saying like, it's strange to be carrying a, a glass of your friend. <laughs> yes. It's like, what the heck is this even? 
It's it's it, it, but what 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 are we going to? He's going to go to a planet and pour out pond somewhere, and he's going to make a new pond. You already kind of reminded me of a here we go going other references. It kind of made me think of Ego from Guardians of the Galaxy too, where he puts little pieces of himself mm. on other planets. I, I, and, and, I would and think, what's, what's, I was thinking more of the Deep Space Nine aliens that are liquid. Um, yeah, 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 but but they, but they don't they, they don't generally that's a Gestalt thing as well. Yeah, yeah but they don't generally split into other uh, make new beings that way. Whereas I don't know. Whereas whereas don't really care. more explicitly, Eco kind of does too, that. A little bit too um, down the road. What, what about the uh, the um, I want to call it the glory hole moment, but that's not what it is. It's a time of day. When God speaks to everybody, what's it called? Uh, the God Hour. The God Hour. What's going on? With God that? Hour. Um. I again. Um. I, I guess maybe it goes with the whole existentialism bit. Yeah, I think maybe. it is. It's like some sort of. These are like kind of rough metaphors for something. I think it, it, it it's like um, the splendor of nature in a certain sense. I feel like it's a sunset. The first time I th- uh, that it's mentioned in the book is like, this is sunset? <laughs> is that what it is? Is the golden hour? Right? Is that what it is? No, that's not uh, what it is. No, no it's kind of like a, like for a brief moment you can open your mind to another consciousness, which kind of like, you know, like higher. Yeah, so that's the main theme thing. of the book, right, is gestalting. Getting getting inside of uh, another mind, group mind uh, and becoming one with it. I think I mean he's he's often doing that. I I vaguely remember that in Goblin Reservation too. You've got like a bunch of uh, it, it, which is uh, when, you, when you think about it, isn't that a little bit like uh, isn't that him doing uh, Dunsany? Yeah, a bit. I think maybe. Like uh, King of Elfland's daughter, isn't that him? Sort of. Yeah. I never thought about that before, but that's interesting. But it makes sense. Yeah, so he's doing Shakespeare here, but he's also doing other stuff. Uh, and you know, Shakespeare doesn't it does have a lot of philosophical content in his stuff, but it's all in service to, um, to the drama, which he, uh, you know, is the master at, as opposed to this. There. The, 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 like I, you guys didn't react when I said this, but is there conflict in this story? And if well, so, where? <laughs> um, the time monster. Only at the end. Okay, tell me about it. Right. And how does that, how does that manifest? How does the conflict manifest? I, I mean, I mean, this, I mean, I mean, uh, cal, um, I keep calling Caliban, um, Carnivore goes, car, Carnivore goes and, Faces the monster. I mean, like, um, it's Elaine's instantly. Ready to shoot him, but yeah, but yeah, it, it, it was all pretty quickly, for sure. Incredibly quickly, right? Like how? It, it, it two pages? Not, it's not, not even. It, it, it's not a Heinleinian conflict. It's a Samakian conflict, which means it's over quickly. Yeah, I, and then it I don't, it resolves with uh, a sense of it being uh, fate, or you know, part of a nature. Right, it wasn't nature like nature red in tooth and claw. Yeah, yeah, but not so red, <laughs> not so toothy, not so well, awful. Well, well, car- carnivore dies from it, so I think there's yeah. involved. Yeah, like, but this he, is carnivore. He's he's cool with rock. that. Yes, he is because he's he's kind of trapped on this planet. He, the, getting off the ship, it doesn't look like it's going to be a practical thing. Yeah, um, I, I mean, it's almost like a bit of a tragedy. He dies, and but then we're going to have the gate. 
tunnels open so he could have left, but and yet and yet whereas it, it goes to the whole existential thing, yet his people are still gonna know he's the best he's yep, the best. Even though there's no one to spread the word. <laughs> they're gonna know. He's That's the right, best of know. all time. Mm-hmm. But, but still, I, I, so it's, it's very, very odd that way. I feel like the conflict has to do with like the people and their understanding of the world they're in in, in the universe, and I, and I feel like the, the obstacle that gets in the way of that is that their limited perception. Um, if that if that makes sense, mm-hmm. like the humans, they 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 and the robot, they they discover carnivore. They say. Well, you know, we can't take him on the ship because he'll he'll die in the freeze. But right. in the storage, we don't know if he's sophisticated enough to understand that. Well, let, let's try to explain that to him. Okay. Oh yeah, that makes sense. I can't go on the ship. I don't want to die. In the, in the, so, you know, they 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 don't understand something. They ask a few questions, and then they gain some understanding right. of it. It's always and, resolved. It, we can we can dialogue this, guys. And and it isn't like uh, where you know Heinlein he gives a lecture and that's how he resolves conflict right he, he gives a lecture <laughs> no um, in in CMAC it's like there are only misunderstandings that's the only kind of conflict there are and th- those are easily resolvable by uh, a friendly neighbor <laughs> sitting down and and say oh you're an alien from another planet oh. That's unusual. I had a brother-in-law from Tennessee. <laughs> There's no conflict, right? So yeah, there are uh, what appear to be conflicts at first. You see some guy coming up to your house, and oh shit, it's a salesman, and he's like, "Yeah, I was wondering, uh, do you know if there's a swimming pool around here? I, I was, I was told there's a public pool. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, sure, it's down the street there. Um, it's not the conflict you thought it was. It never is, is what he's saying, and it, it's um. It's a great attitude. He'd be like a really, really good grandpa, I think. You know? Like, Heinlein, he'd be really fun, but annoying. (laughs) Whereas Heinlein, I'm so glad that he's not alive today in the Twitter and social media era, (laughs) because, oh, he would be insufferable. I would see his tweets, and I'd be like, I am never reading a book by this guy. (laughs) And I'd miss out on so many great uh, novels because of that. Yeah, I mean, he's wrong about a lot of, pretty much everything. (laughs) He's wrong about almost everything. But he's wrong in interesting ways, and yes, he's annoying um, because he straw mans, but he, he's undeniable, right? He's un- absolutely undeniable. Uh, yeah, Philip three, Dick three Hugos, yeah. three Hugos, one Nebula, um, and they named him a Grandmaster. Grandmaster. Yeah. I, I there's a uh, audio. I have a record of it somewhere. It should be online now. Um, of him speaking at his Grandmaster acceptance speech. And hmm. when I was listening to it, uh, I was like, what, what, why is he sound? It's because he's wearing dentures and they didn't fit or weren't held in properly. <laughs> so it sounds really strange. It's because he's an elderly man with no teeth. <laughs> so he's taking his acceptance speech and he's got dentures. Um, I guess they didn't have uh, polygrip or whatever it's called. Um, <laughs> but yeah, really nice guy. You gotta be old to get it. Yes. Yes. 
Didn't they give one to uh, the lady who's always getting canceled because she raped kids or whatever? Marion Zimmer Bradley, didn't she get one of those? Get what? Uh, Grandmaster Award or Lifetime Achievement? Um, I'm not sure. I might have actually been taken Grand. back. Um, Grandmaster Marion Zimmer. Uh, yep. Gandalf Awards? I don't know. I I don't pay attention to all that stuff, but uh, so yep. Go for it, Jonathan. No, I was just gonna say I found the book that I had referenced before. It's called the the trilogy is Twenty Thousand Streets Under the Sky. And mm-hmm. The three books in the trilogy are The Midnight Bell, The Siege of Pleasure, and The Plains of Cement, and they were all written in from twenty nine to thirty five. Huh. So. Well, uh, it seems like it's a, it's engaged with, um, with, uh, Jules Verne, who. It, it, that's what the title indicates, but it's more of like, uh, like a contemporary take on Dickens. It's more like his mm. kind of social realism. Yeah, I'm not a, you know, look at these poor people, you know, living in London and how they live and they have lives too, you know. But it, it's good. Some people, you know, just resonate more. Some people just can't get over Dickens. I've n- I've not read anything. I once that- I once played him, mm. like reading a Christmas Carol. Well, actually, twice they had me do it again. Um, so I guess I I like him sort of because I got to be him. But I like his <laughs> his, and I think a Christmas Carol, I mean, is brilliant. I, the other stuff is a little harder. But I do like that he deals with like class, and I forget. Is, Paul, are you the one who always likes to talk about class, or is that somebody another? Evan, you think you're thinking of Evan? I'm, I'm the one Evan. who's actually okay. related to Charles. You're the one who makes fun of Evan for t- talking about class. That's right. No, I don't yeah, make so fun of him. No, wants... no, I don't make fun <laughs> of Evan. I'm the one who's actually related to Charles Dickens on my father's side. Oh, nice! Wow, wow. wow that's send it through his sister. But I, I think that talking about class is important, although I wish like we, we were all doing something about mm-hmm. class, because I think the whole concept of class and like I even think about when I'm on airplanes, like first class and all that. And like, we're going to treat you great because you paid more for your ticket, like just sort of or, 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 makes me or, or, sad. Or even 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 more poignantly, the whole the, the, the lines of the TSA is, is a is a clear example of how class works. And like, mm-hmm. if you can pay money, then you don't have to take off your shoes. Yeah, basically. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, it's all that stuff. Like, just, just treating anybody differently. And again, and I think C-Mac gets into this in the book to try to, like, make that, this have anything to do with the podcast, but, like, try, treating other people differently for anything about them, whether it's their financial status, their, their socioeconomic status, their color of their skin, you know, their age, whatever their it is. Boobs. Just, yeah, their, their boobs with beautiful rose tattoos or heart tattoos on them. Like, you know, uh, it's fine. You know, you know um, like, one of the, one of the things um, in India, they call it caste, right? Not class. Right. Um, right. Uh, the Sikh religion, uh, everybody uh, takes the name Singh, somewhere mm-hmm. in their name. Um, part of the argument is uh, the reason they did that is so that it eliminates caste. Uh, nobody knows your caste because they're all in the same class now. They're all a member of the same name. The name usually told... Right. So you go to university and they said, what's your name? <laughs> well, now everybody knows your cast. Oh, we're, you're one of those people. Oh, God. But if you all adopt a name that is unique, 
to that religion, not only does it bind you together as part of the religion, it also def- defeats the class uh, or caste in this case thing. And that's interesting because, um, you know, if Paul walked around with the last name Dickens, um, people would treat him better. <laughs> right? Because he's got a famous name. Right. Right? That's just uh, a fact. So, yeah. Class is very important, but it's uh, it's not going away because people demand they want to be in the upper class. They want to be in the upper caste. Um, nobody says to their kid, hey, you know, uh, my young daughter, uh, you're not a princess. You're a peasant. <laughs> you're a maid. Like, your daughter says, I'm a maid? Yeah, that means you have to scrub floors. <laughs> you have to clean pots. Oh, I, I wanted to be a princess. No, you're a maid. Because nobody aspires to be low class. They only aspire to be upper class. And so unless we centralize what this means, you know, hey, I'm a Disney princess. <laughs> and what that means is I, I give uh, Hunter, just, just, Hunter just, Biden just, just a foot voice. massage um, <laughs> with my, my yeah, feet. Yeah, you know, sometimes or, I think... <laughs> like I could be a much more successful author today than I am if only I had chosen <laughs> a pen name instead of instead of going by my real name. Whoa, whoa. Um, why do you think why do you think that matters a lot? Well, because like one of my when I I was a telemarketer and you know my my boss he, he says what's your name and I my first day and I say well it's Jonathan Wexley says okay we're going to use your initials but it's James Williamson now. Right, right. Whatever yeah. he chose. Yeah, yeah. You know? Um, and why? Well, because nobody's going to trust somebody named John Weichsel. Um, yeah, yeah. You know? And so I Too took ethnic. that name when I was telling Mark. <laughs> it wasn't legal. It was an FCC violation. I didn't know that back then. But, you know, I, I, I took it and I used it. And that, that was that was what I did. And now, like, I'm a writer. And I say, well, what, what's going to be my name? A lot of I people say, well, do why that. Don't I, why don't I be J. Manfred Weichsel? Because that's my actual name. And I'm like, oh, God, nobody can spell this. Nobody can. No. No, it's not it. good for they spelling. They look at it, and they don't uh, hear any pronunciation in their head because it's a bunch of consonants together, um, so they can't remember it. I'm like, I should have just picked something better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the reason I know how to spell Heinlein is because I spelled it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but then, like, would it still be me if I had chosen a different name? Would no. I be writing with the same kind of integrity? You'd be, you'd be somebody else. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I'm not a fan of writing under a pen name just because, you know, for marketing purposes, it makes me think I don't need to read that. Yeah, I, I, I somewhat agree. Uh, but then, like, I think, like, Mark Twain or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, Richard Stark is a great writer. Yeah. Um, Has, you know, since you mentioned class yeah. um, and, and last names, I just... You know, something that sometimes I think about. Yeah, whenever people change their name uh, for whatever reason, it's always like uh, suspicious. <laughs> so you, um, you you think of those stories where somebody's trying to in in bagel their way into a into a you know jet set class with uh, some New York hippies or I don't know, not hippies there, <laughs> just the laptop people who. 
you know, take vacations on tropical islands all the time. <laughs> the way you do it is uh, you lie a lot. <laughs> but uh, I'm not I'm not into that. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm glad you don't, even though it makes it hard to spell. I just have to type it a lot, and then I'll get used to it, maybe. I, I mostly and, spell Paul's name right. You know, I, I go on mostly. a podcast, and the first question I was, how do you pronounce that? Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, Weichel, yeah. Weichel? Weichel. And how do you spell it's, that? Uh, it's the German name of a river that's in Poland that the Polish call the Vistula. So it's called the Vistula now, but when the... That would actually probably be a better name for your... Uh, if you were going to swap names instead of, like, Williamson. Vistula. Uh, John and Vistula? Um, no, I, I think I'd get a lot of... Yeah, no, it sounds strange, right? But it'd be memorable. Because it's a little bit like fistula. Here, like in 2016 or whatever, (laughs) when I decided to start writing. Uh, I was here. (laughs) He was here. He was here. Um, So I I had a couple more notes for the book. Mm -hmm. Um, Has anybody read Avram Davidson's Masters of the Maze? No. No. Um, It's another book about time tunnels and about. Aliens and stuff running through the tunnels and um, a couple of Earth people winding up trying to get wrapped up into the plot and trying to use the tunnels for their own ends. But they go in time as well as in space. And I remember, spoiler, Jesse, Jesse won't mind, spoiler, at the end, one of the bad guys gets shunted off in a tunnel and winds up in Australia during... 40,000 years ago with the Aborigines and they think he's a ghost. And it's just like hilarious. It's like they just, 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 just treat them so weirdly, but it's just, it's got aliens, it's got weird tunnels, it's got minotaurs. It's a ve- I kept thinking of the of, of the like, oh, are we going to get actually go into the tunnels or we just this is just like a dead end and not see any of the rest of the uh, of of this network? And I guess that's true. Um, so I had a thought that maybe, although although um, Simak doesn't explore it, I thought maybe. This planet was meant to be an obulette because we have the time monster and other stuff I here. Think I you're thought pronouncing maybe, that word wrong. Can you say it again? Uh, obulette. Obulette. I think is the vocab. Oubliette. I okay, think Oubliette. I think that's from Heinlein. That's where I learned that one. Obulette. Okay. May, 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 okay. I thought maybe this planet is deliberately an yeah, secret dungeon with access only through a trapdoor. I think that's I learned that in Friday. Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah, that's a very okay. Heinlein word. When he, it's a very Heinlein. Well, when he I'm wants to say toilet, he calls it an oubliette or something like that. No, well, but, but it's also a very like um, dungeon sort of thing, like yeah, a one-way trapdoor yeah. dungeon. Yeah. I thought maybe maybe Shakespeare's planet is an oubliette. Yeah. And meant 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 for you're you're meant to get in, but you're not meant to. It's kind of like the worst one to tell you. You check in, but you can't check out. Yeah. And it was designed that way by whoever designed this network, who we don't know. And, yeah, it's never explained. I mean, right? Elaine, 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 Elaine says they're trying to, to research it, but you know. Um, yeah, God put us on this uh, oubliette called Earth. <laughs> but but Earth is not an oubliette. But I think Shakespeare's plan may be an oubliette. Why do you say it's not? <laughs> um, because people were able to get off of Earth. And oh, dude, how many have been able to get off and for how, how long? That's right. true. Right. Um, Oh, that, but that, that, that's a whole different Elon topic. Musk wants to get out of the Ubliat, but I don't think he's going to get what he wants. Even when we go to the moon, we're still within the Earth's gravitational field. Yeah, yeah. True. Um, and and the, I, I, 
12 guys have gone camping on the moon. That's not escaping me yeah. yet. It's like That's- a guy climbing up and he says, I can see a window. <laughs> I, I, I mean, there's a, there's a whole uh, subgenre of novels and stories where Earth is kind of farmed out and, and held in held out from the rest of the universe for one reason or the other but that's but that those are different books than than this one but um let me see how many notes i had um tommy you have any more notes uh i don't i think i we pretty much i've touched on all of them but i will double check i have one more note for you jesse all right um so the the whole purpose of the ship and trying to find planets and and not being a great at it and keep going on and on made me think of early known space by Niven. If you remember the probes that they send out Rammer. wind up getting not so great planets. You get you get Wonderland, which just has the the one continent above the rest of the crappy planet. And then you have the other then you have um then you have the other planet where where they landed. They landed when the weather was good, but otherwise the weather on the planet is awful. So everyone has to live underground. It kind of ships. Mission kind of reminded me like that. Kind of, you know, anywhere in a universe where planets aren't that great and and kind of very hit or miss, kind of like Niven uh, known space that way. Mm. And that's all the notes I. Oh yes, and the Time Monster reminded me of um, another novel with uh, time travel and stuff, and then I'd be dancing in Hyperion. And that's all the notes. I yeah, had. I actually did get a little Hyperion vibe early on, and I I think uh, like I like that book. But I think I like this one better, even though they're kind of doing the same thing. Um, and I think probably the reason is um, he didn't write any sequels. Whereas Dan Simmons wrote a bunch of sequels. Yeah, right yeah. Yes. Um, I'm, I mean, that book is a lot sparkier than this one. It's got a lot more, you know, I don't know, a mythology. But I think uh, I just I I, I think um, C-Mac has a better philosophy, life philosophy than does. does C-Mac, uh, C-Mac, I mean, also, um, Dan Simmons, Simmons is a horrible per- person. Oh, so. oh, okay. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, he, 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 he went completely far right. And, oh, um, well, that, that, that's what I was saying. Islam- He's a monster. <laughs> well, well, and, and, and Islamophobic is, is, um, suggesting that Mecca Medina should be nuked and, and stuff like that. <laughs> okay. So, so yeah. Okay. Yeah, he, uh, after after 2001, he wrote this essay about um, oh, about Islam taking over taking over the West, and America has to do something about it. And yeah, it's so he he is a broken step, as they say. A broken ladder. Broken step. I don't know what's the difference. Um, a broken step is someone you just don't want to be near with at any broken time. Broken step. Broken step. It's generally used for um, sexual predators, there. but I'm using. I'm using for uh, I'm using it for um, far right nutsos. I've never seen heard this expression. Yeah, no, I've never heard this either. Broken, uh, broken step. Yeah. New so, one for me, but I like it. Broken step. I'm going to. What's that website that gives you urban Urban Dictionary? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what's that Urban Dictionary website? I, I, I mean, Wikipedia has it as missing stare. Uh. A man who commits suicide after being stepped on by a feminist. No, the mystic I'm horrified by every element of this situation. I never want to speak of it again, but I refuse to be sorry for naming a broken stare, and I refuse to be made an example of to discourage survivors from speaking up. That's the only definition on 
Urban Dictionary for Broken no, Stare. Uh, go, go, no, go to, go to Wikipedia, Missing Stare. Missing Stare? Missing Stare. Missing But the, the, the way I learned the phrase is Broken Step. I mean, I, I don't know. Like, I, I was uh, eyewitness to 9-11, and I remember, like, a lot of people being angry at most Dude, of it broke a lot of people. Yeah. But, yeah, but he, but, but he was kind was... of, but, but, and, and then, um, okay, so I read, um, Ilium okay. by here, him. Here, let, let me read this okay. one. The missing stare okay. is a metaphor for a person within a social group who may, many people know is untrustworthy or otherwise has to be quote unquote managed. Wow. But around whom the group chooses to work by discreetly warning newcomers of their behavior. Oh my God. Rather than, than address, address them well, and I mean, this, their this, behavior yeah, goes, openly, that is evil. This is this go this goes to like a con culture, like oh he's he's I mean he writes good stuff, but he's one of the bad ones. Stay away so from that's it, it whisper goes network whisper shit. Yes, huh. it, yes, it comes from whisper networking. I mean nowadays um, with Me Too and stuff like that, this the, now we're much more forthright about talking about these sorts of things. But way back when, it was kind of like like yeah, you don't want. Author author X, you should uh, if you're if you're young and uh, female and pretty, you should not be alone with author X because author X has grabby hands, sort of thing. Jesus. Um, a a local con here that was used to run by a prominent science fiction fancy author, who I will not name. <laughs> that author ejected from the con. He helped refound because he is he was uh, bleeping the sing stair broken step of okay. the worst order. And did things to some of my friends. And when I found out about it, I was like, yeah, I'm not reading any of his work ever again. Thank you very much. Have you guys seen a movie called Until the End of the World? It's a really good, um, very long uh, <laughs> Vim Benders movie. Is it, um, no, it's, it's a weird segue, Jesse. Uh, oh, well, okay. no, there's a phrase in it. It's, it's, kind of some, it's a really terrific science fiction movie. Um, it stars William Hurt and Slovig Domartin, who's like a... European actress. Um, it's a really strange movie, a really good movie. 1991? Yeah, it's an art film. Um, and it's set in like 1999. Um, and uh, it travels all over the world. Um, the plot is meandering, but one of the things uh, that's going on is um, he's trafficking in uh, a machine that allows you to read dreams, like record dreams. And people like become, Strange Days? Isn't that. That sounds like strange no, day. because you record them and then you watch them afterwards. That um, is strange days. Not exactly. Um, uh, so people become obsessed with reading their, watching their own dreams because they're interesting to them. They're not interesting to other people. Okay, that's okay. one of the that's things that's going on. There's also like a uh, opal mine heist sort of thing going on. Um, there's a, a lot of traveling. It's got music by U2, which you know. Is a thing until uh, the end of time. Yeah, well, there's a movie song called "Until the End of the World." Exactly. <laughs> until the end of time is the song. Well, it's in the movie as "Until the End of the World." Well, okay. <laughs> it's probably a different song. I'm not a U2 expert, uh, but I am. I have seen this movie, and one of the things she says, uh, Slavik Demirtan says to him, it's in like multiple languages. And Vim Vendors, if you you guys know him, uh, that. Sure. Uh, movie director. So, uh, indie director, yeah. Yeah. He did, he did actually one really interesting Hollywood movie that got no attention. Um, but it was very interesting. Which one? Um, 
maybe Jonathan can help me out. It it, it was is basically there was giant cannons on top of uh, the mountains of Hollywood where the government could just zap people out of existence. <laughs> you don't know this one? No. Um, it sounds good. Yeah, it is good. I believe I want he he did the end of violence. Is that the one? Is that the movie? Yeah, that's it. Uh, synopsis. Movie producer Mike, Mike Max meditates on the paranoia of fear of attack, the movie business, and life in general. It's a very existential movie. Uh, as his uh, wife, Paige, announces she is leaving him, he receives a document by email from a NASA employee he met earlier at a conference. Before opening it, he is kidnapped and almost killed. A scene captured by surveillance cameras and witnessed by computer scientists... Uh, on surveillance footage seen in his laboratory, however, it's a, well, basically it's a murder mystery. Um, it turns out the government is, it's, it's basically drones before drones. People just be zapped out of existence, um, on their way to work if the government doesn't like what they're doing. Um, but it doesn't, you know, it, it's, it's played like a drama, which is weird because it's not. It's a science fiction movie. Um, so yeah. have, have any of you seen, I think Paris, Texas is probably his most famous Yeah, one. that's a fairly famous one. Have, have, you, have you all seen that one? I think I did. That's I, with, um, I, I have not. Who's the actress from Moonlighting? Is About Gianna? one of these. Sybil Shepard. I believe so. Yeah, Sybil Shepard. Okay. So, um, he, he did a bunch of good movies, um, but they're not uh, very commercial. A scene in the film, a scene in the end of violence has a live, live recreation of Nighthawks by Ed, Edward Hopper. Like it's a, it's about the film industry. So, um, it's sort of a meta film as usual until the end of the world. Is it, it's a genuine science fiction. It's almost like cyberpunk, but it's sort of uplifting compared to most cyberpunk, but it's also, uh, it's U2 style uplifting, which is bad. <laughs> Anyways, it's a ver- there's two, at least two versions of Until, Until the End of the World. They're both really long. Um, one of them is incredibly long, but they're all very, um, it, it's very strange to see genuine SF on film. He did, uh, one called The Million Dollar Hotel with, um, what's his name? Uh, Mel Gibson. Yeah, it, it, they're art films, essentially, that are science fiction generally. He's a German guy. Yes. Like, his movies, like, um, Paris, Texas has, like, Dean Stockwell in Mm -hmm. it and Harry Dean Stanton. A lot of his movies have Harry Dean Stanton in them. Like, they're that kind of, like, indie. He did Wings of Desire. Is that him, too? I do not know. I'm looking at his Wikipedia right now. Let's see if Wings of Desire. Yep, that so, is him. Uh, quick, yep. quick question: Are we, uh, are yeah, we still done. working on the book, or, oh. or okay? Because I'm just because I'm I have only an hour or two left at my yeah, sister's no, before I have to drive home. So if we're if we're wrapping, I may bounce. Yep. Um, but Thank I don't want to. Yeah, it's about time for me miss. to go as well. No worries. Okay. Yeah, a couple hours in, it was awesome and fun, and I'm mm-hmm. I'm sorry I'm so critical of nudity. I really do like. <laughs> I really do like women and tattoos and dresses <laughs> and all those things. I just, just want you guys to know that. But uh, it was a lot of fun. And uh, I think, I don't, Jonathan, I don't know if you were on the last time, but I don't think you were so nice to meet you. If, if I, was, I'm uh, wrong. I, I was in uh, the last one. I was in Logan's Run. Yeah, uh, two weeks ago, I guess it would have been. It was two weeks maybe, ago. I don't know. Oh, boy. 
I already forgot. Yes, hard questions. It's the one I read. The City of Singing Flame. City of Singing Flame. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, Harlan. No, I wasn't in that yeah. one. No. So nice to meet you then, as I as I thought I was doing. And Paul, good to see you again. And Jesse, yep. um, thanks for having me along. And yeah, we'll, we'll, thank you. We'll, what was your name? I'm again? Tommy. Yeah, Tommy. Tommy. Patrick Tommy Ryan. Ryan. Yeah. Oh, so hey, wait, I'm wait, doing wait, wait. a few recordings for Jesse right now yeah. uh, as well that have gone on the Jonathan, website. Jonathan, I've been, I think I was supposed to, my, I'm still quite feverish, so you have to forgive me here. I think I was trying to make you two connect, um, because somebody needs to do audiobooks out of Jonathan's stuff, otherwise I'll never <laughs> get to experience it. Yeah. Uh, my books have a lot of uh, nudity in them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, like again, you got to understand. Like uh, to me, my problem isn't with it happening; it's how it ha- was handled and whether or not it fit in the novel. Similar to like, I liked the idea of the ship and the three voices and the brains and everything, but I didn't think that they fit in the novel. You're so right. Don't they don't. Think yeah. it's, so it's, it's, like, it's, I um, enjoy gratuitous so sex and violence. Good. I just didn't think that this was a book that needed that. And I thought that like, if you're going to be, if your point is to be philosophical about like moving forward, right? Like, and maybe this is the, what I never managed to express, but like, if this is, this feels like a progressive novel in many ways when it talks about things like the environment and the way that we eat and the way that we treat other people and even like the treatment of carnivore. Yeah. But I therefore felt like, there, the treatment of Elaine though was not. I don't think it wrong. is a progressive like, novel. I think he, I think well, the, he, he, I don't think he fits easily into the right wing left thing thing. Yeah, because um, he's so it was old. Philosophically, like it was centered towards what I tend to think of as like right thinking, and maybe and then at the end, this is just me, right, right so, as in correct anyway, or right as in right wing. Yeah. I think, you know, Jonathan may think that I'm a douche now, and that's <laughs> now I'm going to read his books. Well, I, mean, no, 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 I don't no. think you're the, the right choice to narrate my, my books. I don't think you're mm-hmm. a douche. I don't, <laughs> I don't oh, judge what do you. What are your you book titles, all. Jonathan? Let's hear your book titles for people. Because I, I, I usually, uh, I, 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 again, I have a fever, so. Um, I'm not Let's see. My latest one was the collection of short stories, uh, Warrior Soul and Other Stories. That's my most recent uh, book. Going, it was my Kitty, tenth was book. Kitty Cat Massacre, wasn't that one of them? Yeah, Kitty Cat hmm. Massacre. Um, yeah, I mean, I got a website. It's uh, but Jane. They're, they're all like, um, when, I, when I'm looking at his covers, I'm like, man, those are great covers. And then I'm looking at the story descriptions. I'm like, that sounds horrific. <laughs> and I say, oh, it makes me want to read it, right? As opposed to, you know, a uh, bunch of people cheating on each other and and uh, whisper networks or whatever. It's like, I don't care anything about that. What I do care about is uh, a bunch of uh, GIs in the Pacific uh, collecting uh, Japanese heads. That's horrific. Yeah, that's Savage Headhunters. Mm-hmm. That's based on a yeah. true story. Right. I mean, they really did collect Japanese skulls, the U.S. soldiers uh, on Guadalcanal. That's drama. And freaky. How do you get into that headspace? Unintended, I'm sure. Exactly. Uh, Fair enough. Whatever it was, if if the fact that I came across as a social justice warrior or as a whatever (laughs) thing, it's not a big deal to me. Um, I don't necessarily think of myself as that, but I know how I can be perceived that way. It was good to meet you guys. Judge have it's a good meeting you. very good meeting. Yeah, you. have yeah. a great time, and I'll catch you for the next one. Yeah, All sounds right? good. Right. Have a good one, dude. All right, bye bye. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, um, well, Vim Van. He's uh, defensive. Well, well defensive. no, I, I think you know he, he, you know he's everybody's everybody's operating in uh, 
traumatized headspaces. A lot of people's maybe, brains are broken by Trump. A lot of people's brains maybe are broken I came on too strong. I don't know. I, no, I, I think fine. myself was laid back. I th- I th- maybe maybe I was too aggressive. You're fine. You're fine. Yeah. Um, people got traumatized by 9/11, right? People who were pre- completely reasonable before. Um, they just got there, you know, it, it triggered, um, uh, I want to think of, uh, you know, not con- right wing exactly, but conservative thinking is, it's a, um, it's a, you're not of the body. It's that episode of Star Trek, right? Yeah. Where they go down in this festival planet. Um, you're not of the body. Well, why do you say that? Well, because you're, uh, you're a disease. Oh, we need to kill the disease, right? So when when people get triggered by Trump or they get triggered by 9-11 um, or COVID, right, people just sort of, they, they turn off uh, receiving data and only hear part of what is out there. And it it's like, it's hard to understand. It's hard no, to understand. I, I actually, I mean, I, I was, uh, there and, you know, all that. I, I remember slightly, like, you know, shortly after 9-11, um, I was, uh, getting a hot dog at a hot dog. <laughs> so I had After 9-11 or during 9-11? After, like, like, you know, like a few, maybe months later, I don't know, okay. a few weeks and yeah. later. So I put down my bag to get the hot dog and to pay the guy and you know because you gotta have two hands to do this um and the moment i put down my bag some guy came screaming at me don't you put your bag down there do you know what just happened you know they're doing like like a bomb in my bag and i was trying to bomb the hot dog and he was like shouting like in my face and i thought this guy is you know he's going crazy but at the same time I was doing the same kind of stuff and I wasn't really able to recognize that I was doing the same kind of stuff. Like, and shortly after 9-11, there's a blackout in New York and I happened to be underground in the subway when the blackout happened and the car stopped and there were no cell phones under the train then. So there's no way to find out why the car stopped and people were really scared. Like people were sweating. I looked around. I said, wow, these people are really scared. What's wrong with them without realizing that I was scared. For the same reason too. Yeah, you know, I was scared yeah. too. So I think well, fear is contagious, know, right? Yeah, it's easy to look and see that in other people and to recognize that they're being affected in an irrational way by these circumstances. But it's really hard to look within yourself and to see that you're being affected by it too. Which I mean, I've told you so many times why I don't like social media but i think like that's the reason like it lets these pathogens like like it makes them ultra contagious like they they go from like person to person yeah but and you can see it looking around social media and you can see how other people are being affected but it's really hard to look within yourself and to see how you're being affected by that too and that's what really frightens me about the whole uh twitter and facebook thing yeah oh i'm not so worried about it but that I am not normal either. Uh, one of the things I'm really interested in is the number of followers to followed. Um, if you are a person who has a huge following count and a very small follower count and you're tweeting, um, that's weird. If you're a person with a huge uh, 
following and follows no one, that's really strange, right? Um, uh, there was a guy, I'm, uh, Paul, are you still with us? Okay. I'm, I'm still here. Oh, okay. I, uh, there was some guy, I think you might have retweeted the person. Um, he was saying, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm considering reducing my, uh, followers, uh, because I don't think most people are getting my tweets. Um, and, and I looked at the guy's following count. And he had like 11,000 people he was following. And then he had like 26,000 that he was, fo- uh, no followers. I'm like, there's no way he could see anything that they're, any random person who's, he's following, right? It's just ridiculous. Nobody. So like when you see that's like, a, that's a fire hose. Yeah. So Stephen King, uh, I, I, he, he, most of the people he's following are like not active. Um, they're like, you know, cast members from a television show that's been off the air for 10, 10 years or, or actual television show that he was on 10 years ago. Right. So he, when he got on Twitter, he followed a bunch of things and then sort of just drifted away from that. And now he just uses it to, you know, tweet about politics, um, which is uh, probably a lot more like what I'm doing, except I'm, I'm writing essays, Twitter essays or whatever. Um, and, and DMing people, uh, that sort of thing. But um, it, it is really strange thinking You're about... posting your chicken dinners. You haven't done that in a while because I, I've been sick. Because you've been sick. Yeah. I, I should have I guessed that's what you were yeah. sick because you haven't posted chicken dinner in a I've while. Been, I've been busy and sick. I was trying to get ahead on podcast recording so I can get over to the island here. So um, what's strange here? Say again? Y- you were... You kind of cut off in the middle of a thought. I was following that. Oh, but, um... <laughs> I'm not sure now. You talk talk about Stephen King and he was following. Oh yeah, so people use Twitter in different ways, right? So uh, Paul, I can see like what's going on at work all day long. (laughs) Um, You know, it's a slow minute, so he's he's upset about uh, some Republican. But I I also post book reviews. Yeah, yeah, and links. It's a a steady feed of everything that's happening with Paul, right? Um, and then there's other people like, uh, uh, Fred, he tweets, um, Fred, Fredosphere, he tweeted a, uh, a candy bar he liked. <laughs> Mostly he, he does like, um, uh, books, book related stuff, you know, and then jokes about co- covers and stuff. So people use, uh, Twitter all sorts of different ways. Um, but, uh, I don't, I don't think, like, I think it's, it's something to do, the contagion you're worried about is something to do with the people and not the media, right? Because that media, uh, when I'm talking to my students about why people were obsessed with, with, uh, premature burial, right? That wasn't because of social media like we have. It was because of regular media, print media, sure. right? Um, or the fact that we have uh, the second red scare. I was tweeting about, um, uh, it's a Dashiell Hammett, right? <laughs> he was he was at Pinkerton. He was fought in World War One and World War Two, um, and then uh, was jailed for something that was happening uh, just uh, the other day. Apparently in Atlanta, you know the city, um, they're trying to build something called Cop City, which is uh, gonna be a training ground for cops, and the locals are not happy about it, so they're protesting. 
and the cops are raiding the group that is planning to bail out the people who are going to get arrested. Like they're just gathering money and prepping for this. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what Dashiell Hammett was arrested yeah, they're, for. They're trying to convict them under RICO standards, which is ridiculous. Yeah, it's just, you know, uh, it, it should be illegal. It's not because the system is corrupt. Um, but Dashiell Hammett's a hero. Um, and we don't think about that aspect of his, his, um, and he knew, he knew whereof he spoke when he wrote Red Harvest. <laughs> um, mm. but he lived that life too, right? Um, he was a victim of the second Red Scare. Um, it's, it's a horror. And how did this Red Scare shit happen? It wasn't because of social media. It was, it was something inherent to people. So I think sure, your, your, you're saying it's like, but, um, social media, I think it's there for sure, but I don't think it's worse under, under Twitter. I think it's just more visible. I don't know. But I, I don't know anything about like, Facebook. It's like mass hysteria, like on crack. It's like a, a, a means of distributing it. Like, like, um, I don't know. Like back, I was thinking since I was talking about like the nine 11, the post nine 11 yeah, yeah. era, you know, I used to know in New York a couple girls who were really into pro-anocytes. What's that? Do you know, do, well, the pro-anocytes, where this is pre-social media, and they were pro-ano oh, means pro-anorexic. Oh, my God. Now, when, when they <laughs> saw all the anti-anorexic, that, that, that was propaganda, yeah. telling them how their body should be, yep. telling them that they should be fat, telling them that they shouldn't be anorexic, and that that was their enemy. Yeah. Their friends were the pe- the girls on these pro sites who gave each other tips yeah. on how to lose weight. They gave each other encouragement. Mm-hmm. If they felt hungry or whatever, they would give them moral support so yeah. that they could become as thin as they possibly yeah, yeah. could be. Um, and uh, one girl I knew eventually died. Um, from, you know, using these pro-anocytes to lose weight. I think think though that's exactly the same thing that's going on with all the trans stuff right now. It's It's the same, these social memes that really grab hold of people. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's really interesting because we don't normally think of ourselves as uh, being subject to um, uh, thought control, but that's what we are. We're social yes. beings, so how do how do we deal with it? It's real tough. Um, you know, I used maybe the sorry. maybe the Mennonites are right. You stay off social media, <laughs> but uh, they're, they're, they're kind of weird, right? They got their own things going. Electricity. <laughs> oh, you we bracket her one uh, hard sci-fi novel uh-huh. is about the Mennonites takeover. Yeah, we read that one, didn't we? Oh, uh, did you? The day yeah. after tomorrow, I think. Is that what it's called, Paul? I, I, no, we didn't read any Mem yeah. Night City. No, we did a Lee Lee Bracket. No, we, we did Lee we, we did What's Lee Bracket, but not we we did uh, we did Lee Bracket, but it was a Mars novel. No, no, it wasn't we, a Member Night Takeover novel. It's not a seal. We did a Lee Bracket recently. I'm going to look at the schedule. Well, it, it's, it's right, not but it's not it's not this one. Long it's tomorrow, isn't that the, the one long tomorrow? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's the, the one he was thinking of. Yeah, yeah, we did that um back in twenty last summer. Oh, darn. Uh, last June. Well, anyway, that's what really, you know, frightens me about social media because oh, like, I, was I, not, can... I was not on that one. That's uh, why I don't remember it. Yeah, I, Paul, not available. Ju- last June. Uh, yeah. Where was I last June? Um, I must have been somewhere. 
You, huh. you were away for a couple weeks at least. Orphans in the Sky, you missed that too. Probably at yeah, some convention I, in June. Well, that, 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 or, well, 2020, 2022. Yeah, I must have been off at a convention. Must have been off like a poetry fantasy or something. But anyway, I've got to go. All right. Um, Bye, Paul. Good conversation, Jesse. Jonathan, take care and uh, be well. All right. Have a good one. Bye now. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. So, um, you know, that's what, like, and, like, you know, I, I used to tweet about, you know, what books I was reading, and I used yeah. to tweet that's these good. book reviews. But then what happened was I found two things happened. Number mm-hmm. one, I found that, like, instead of reading what I wanted, mm. I it started to read what I thought would get the most traction on social media. Yeah, yeah. I like like your thinking here. I like your thinking because you're saying I'm deeply subject to this shit. i got to be careful. I I think that's exactly exactly right. Um, I guess I don't... um, I I guess I'm just a weird person. (laughs) One of the ones like uh, I saw yesterday, there's this guy in England, I think. His name is David Curry. I don't know. I think he listened to the podcast. Anyways... Um, every once in a while, he, he gets upset about my, uh, my political tweets, <laughs> which I do a lot. Um, I, I really like sure. political tweets. And, uh, there's, um, a few other people. There's another guy called Smoldering Toxicity. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, uh, who, I think they don't agree. Yeah, here it is. Um, so, uh, Max Blumenthal tweets, under pressure, obvious pressure from the British NATSEC, National Security State, uh, and it's media lackeys. The UK National Union of Journalists has deleted its statement of concern about Kit Clarenberg's detention by counterterrorism police. That was a lot of words that... Uh... I'll just to summarize it. Basically, Kit Clarenberg is uh, an actual journalist. He was uh, he went to the UK for work, and they stopped him at the airport under um, terrorism laws um, and made him answer a whole bunch of questions if he... Uh, under the law, um, he had to. Com- he was compelled to answer, um, and uh, some people thought, "Oh, yeah, that's um, kind of horrible." <laughs> and uh, the this um, uh, the National Union of Journalists did a, like a tweet of support and then took it down, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because they're under pressure. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, so David uh, tweeted size jesse <laughs> and then deleted the tweet and i was like what so I, jesse just be i was re- typing up the reply jesse just being weird thinking facts about reality might affect opinion and i can't retweet it because or you know hit the tweet button because his his he deleted his tweet so to me him writing that up means he thinks um like i don't get something or something like, no i think one of the cool things about seeing a tweet is you can like, Oh yeah, this is something more people should know about. <laughs> um, uh, or this is a good joke. I can pass it on to my friend, right? Like that. And then other people, they think, Oh, this guy's really smart, except for this one thing where he's really dumb. <laughs> sure. And w- what makes me really dumb here? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, like, I-, I think it's like, um, I think there's like some principles. You have some principles somewhere out there that you think these things are valuable. Right? Like I think books are really valuable. And say, but you seem to be piling them on that uh, fire over there. Why are you doing that? Well, not these books. 
I say, okay, well, um, that seems some, like it needs some reconciliation. It's like, I think journalism's a really good idea, but not people who don't do real journalism, like those people, only authorized sources. So, like, I, I have no idea what's going on in his brain. Um, mm-hmm. but people, like, they tar sources. They say, oh, that, that journalist's no good. Are you saying that the words he's written up are lies? Because that's very different from, he's just a, I don't like him. Um, sure. And, uh, my friend Evan, he recently, uh, he, he, he got, tri- he got triggered by Elon Musk. He's, he's very triggered by, um, uh, by anything Taiwan related because he lives in Taiwan, I guess. Okay. Um, and, uh, so he decided, uh, he's going to, um, uh, he, he's blocking all, uh, blue checks now. <laughs> um, because they're all people paying the Elon Musk tax or whatever, sure, right? Sure, dollars, yeah. Right. So to me, um, I, I think it was a really good thing that he changed it so that it's it's uh, uh, showing people who want to be um, in an upper class instead of rather saying this person has been designated somehow as an upper class person. I think it's a really good thing. And I do follow some people who have blue checks, and sometimes... I think, oh, that's a bad idea. Now they write too much. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I don't unfollow people because they're blue checks. Sure. So, like, how did how did he get triggered? And I'm not triggered by that. We're all weird. We're all strange. But uh, 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 what I think about it in terms of like me being a writer and an artist, and you know what what I want, you, you know, like like when you're a writer, like if there's input. The input is what you read and what you consume. Right. And then there's output, which is what you create. Right. So, you know, my input, when you read a book, you know, you're being very deliberate in, in what you book you read and what book you choose. Mm. But when you're on social media, there's a complex mathematical formula that's choosing that for you. Yeah. Oh, um, well, yeah. It's that, you know, it's all shaping the, shaping the market, right? To make, yeah, make the market and, available. Like and it changes the way you as an individual think. Like, yeah. like you go on like one site to watch like a movie, and the site chooses a bunch of movies that you might be interested right. in, and you get lazy after a while. And if you go on like archive.org now, mm. maybe it's harder to find something that you want because there's no algorithms and you're not accustomed to like searching anymore. Mm. You know, yeah, it, I, I, it, I it, have it the opposite seems... of this problem. I'm I'm so iconoclastic. I I'm like. If it's a popular thing, I probably don't want to be involved in it. Not at all. Yeah. Uh, that, that's why I'm always tweeting like old movies, because uh, yeah, I'll I'll watch the first episode of Fubar because I liked uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, but I didn't even finish the first episode because it's shit, right? So, but uh, some people will watch whole seasons, you know, of shows. Uh, thinking like, so- uh, what's that good? Good place. Like I watched the first episode. I'm like, this is dumb. I'm out. Yeah. Uh, but uh, people say, oh no, it'll get good. <laughs> get good. <laughs> Maybe the new stuff. It, it's it's very divorced from the old stuff. Um, there's no continuity between um, you know the the older and the newer, and that's because uh, well, I, I don't know the reason why. But um, with with social 
I don't even remember where I was going with this. It just has to do with like how I want my brain to work mm. and how I want it to uh, in, interpret things in, in my own writing, you know, like, like when, when you're on like, like, so if you go to like 20 bucks to 50 K, what they're going to tell you to do. What's that? 20 like, bucks to 50 K. What's that? 20 bucks to 50 K is like the big Facebook group for indie writers. Okay. Never heard and, of it. Um, well, it's like, yeah, I'm not on Facebook, so it's not surprising. Well, it's it's like even in the like mainstream media talks about. Oh, really? It. Okay. I'm, I'm I'm really surprised actually. Like, I'm pretty out like, of the loop. <laughs> like if you say like you're an indie writer, uh-huh. most people will assume that that's what you're talking about. Okay. Um, it's like like the New York Times, like Wall Street Journal, like any newspaper mentioned in passing. Um, but anyway, uh, what they're going to tell you you should do is you should. Pick a genre, Re- and what they consider a genre is different from what like you do. Like yeah. they're like hyper specific genres. Oh like, yeah, yeah. specific. Yeah. Like so, you, like dungeon core. Let's say. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you pick dungeon core, then you go on Amazon and you read forty dungeon core books. Right. And then you write a you you memorize all of the beats and all the plot points and all yeah, the different. Yeah, they're making a formula. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you you learn the formula and then you write a book exactly to that formula mm-hmm. and get a cover that looks exactly like those covers. Yes, yeah, to tell and people to signal that it's the right thing. So you know that's that's what they do, and they they make books that are unreadable <laughs> well, unreadable but you know they're they're readable to people who are into yeah. that little niche that's a weird, but they're indistinguishable to like an outsider they're indistinguishable from one another yeah. they're all the same and this is what's going to make it really easy for artificial intelligence to start writing these books for yeah. these people but you know that's not what i want to be as an artist <laughs> i want to express yeah. my ideas and i want to write and create unique books that mm-hmm. are unlike anybody else's and i want them and i feel like you know reading old books feeds into what i want to do yeah, it, it helps me you know learn and expand so that i can better express myself and to like expand my language and my vocabulary yeah, nobody nobody's going to be writing waystation uh not waystation uh shakespeare's planet today it just yeah. there's no market for it right it's, it's the wrong kind of book in many ways um but, but we're I, still I, talking about it uh yeah, almost 50 but, years like, later well, when I'm on when I'm on social media, I feel like instead of expanding my vocabulary, oh yeah, it, it decreases my vocabulary, mm-hmm. like almost like Orwellian newspeak, like not in like the paranoid way that people yeah. use it today, Absolutely. but in the way it was actually used in the book. Mm-hmm. Like, well, we're cutting down language so that we can only express like these certain ideas, mm-hmm. and I feel like social media is doing that in the background. Absolutely. So, like, if I'm a writer, I have these tools, which are like my vocabulary, my use of grammar, my my analytical thinking skills, my critical thinking skills, and and whatever. And I feel like social media hijacks those tools, and instead of like sharpening them, it it whittles them down to dulls them. Yeah, Um, I think you're probably right. You know, like if I was in like if this was like 1968, I probably wouldn't want to be a couch potato staring at the boob tube all day. No, and I'd probably be against that. Uh, 
you know, it's it's not like an original thought, but it's it's right. Like you're, you're just like like. Do you know Frank Zappa? His song "I Am the Slime." No. You know, um, well, it's a song about like the the green ooze coming out of the TV and the radio, and it, it's it's just like social media is like a modern version of that kind of slime. It's mm-hmm. just a little bit sneaky and tricky, and you know, camouflages itself, um, but. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'll go back to tweeting interesting things. I don't know. Yeah. <sighs> well, uh, people, people are all different slightly. <laughs> um, I, I, I really enjoy Twitter. I, I find it to be fun. Um, I, I, I get like, I make, I make statements. People disagree with them. And then I'm like, are you disagreeing substantially or are you dis- disagreeing because you just don't like it? because <laughs> uh, like I don't really care I don't really care if I enjoy a book or not as much as I I uh, app- like appreciated what the artist was doing and the artist taught me something somehow um, and uh, it could be like it's almost always you know I want them to not teach me a lesson I've already learned like <laughs> simple stuff I want a little more sophisticated but um, there's uh, you know just I went to the thrift shop. I saw a couple covers of books I'd never seen before. I'm like, these are great covers. These books look terrible, right? <laughs> and that's one of the most popular tweets. Uh, I don't know why it's so popular, but I'm like, random paperback covers of decades past were a billion times better than almost everything published in 2023. And it's just, you know, these are two, like, sequel books that, you know, don't look like I something I pick up and read because I don't know the authors and one of them's a, sequel and the other one looks like a sequel um but <laughs> the, the painted beautiful painted covers with action and you know telling me it's a science fiction i would totally read that if i uh, had nothing else i got other stuff now so yeah. well the theory on design now is that you just want the design to communicate the genre but you want it to look like the other books and yeah. the assumption is that the other books sell, so you want your books to look like them, yeah. um, so the people buy yours. But I just I want my books to look different, yeah. to stand out. Well, they do. They, and, they're really um, solid looking. And and people don't understand that goal. Um, it's yeah. like a foreign idea to them. Um, like, I mean, you sold me. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I'm a, I'm like if you go into like. New York and you talk to people who are like in like the literary publishing industry and you tell them that you read old books like classics like they'll look at you like aghast like like horrified why would we do that and it's it's not like judgmental like in the way that uh, like they have bad tropes or bad ideas (laughs) some people say that (laughs) the reason they're aghast is because they think if you want to be published, you need to read what's contemporary and what's being published yeah. now. You need to learn who the agents are. You need to learn what the agents' individual personal tastes are. And you need to write to those people's tastes, to that 
market so that you can get an agent to pick your book up and you need to know who the publishers are uh, so that you know like what they like so you, you need to understand that market and you're not going to do that by reading old books you're going to do that by reading the books that are published this year yep. that are current That's what they so say. you should you need to keep up with what's current and you know, if you read older books, even a few years old, that's going to pollute that. <laughs> so they have a very, they have a different uh, point of view. So they think by reading old books, you're you're sabotaging your career, right. um, you're undermining yourself. But like, that's not the kind of career that I want. I don't just want to write what's current and what's trendy. There are there are seeming to be there, like a, there are a lot of people who I see on Twitter who seem to think of themselves as writers. Um, probably they are. I just don't read their books, but I see their accounts and I I see like you know Cat Mom and you know Trans Flag and a bunch of other stuff, and then I see the the follower account be quite large, and I think. Uh, oh, their co- their Kofi that they've linked to, or their Venmo, or whatever. There seems to be a big class of of wealthy people who are uh, I say wealthy, just more rich than me, right? People yeah. with disposable income who are willing to uh, buy these books and sell these books to each other. Uh, but when I go to my local um, dollar Dollar Tree and I look at the books section and I see the um, uh, latest book in the series by the lady who hosts Our Opinions Are Correct there, and they still haven't sold the six copies they've had for uh, six months. I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not understanding how the economy works. So I don't, I don't all I can yeah. tell you is if, if, if it was a paperback and it had a good cover and uh, it was promising me uh, something like a Larry Niven or a Asimov or something. I would have snapped it up as a kid. Um, uh, for a buck twenty-five, my God, these are hardcovers. Why am I not snapping them up? Because they don't appeal to me for whatever reason. But it also doesn't appeal to anybody at the dollar store who goes there. <laughs> I, I'm interested, sort of intellectually. Like, look, there's a bunch of tour books here. That's just one, one of the ones that it's. Uh, uh, what are the two people from our opinions are correct? Which is a uh, very Hugo. Nominated podcast or winning podcast. Our opinions are correct. Uh, Charlie Jane Anders and Emily Newitz. Uh, so okay, sure. They, they were the IO9. Right? Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. Exactly. Um, let's see. What's the name of Emily? Uh, it's probably Charlie Jane. Charlie Jane Anders series. Jane Anders books. There it is. Uh, Victories greater than death. So that's available for twenty five dollars on uh, Indigo, um, and a dollar twenty five at my local dollar store. Well, that that's Canadian dollars. Yeah, because yeah. Indigo is a Canadian. Yeah, yeah. But it says you know twelve ninety nine for paperback, twenty four ninety nine for hardcover. Or twelve dollars ebook. It's got a uh, you know a half decent cover for modern books. That's a YA, I believe, um, and it's part of a series. So theoretically, somebody's buying this and reading it. But I, I just I tend to think most of the economy is fake. 
Um, <laughs> so I don't know. I, I, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. These, these are very popular with some people, but I just don't see, so, I don't see that on Twitter. I see a lot of people who have a lot of money who are also asking other people for money. So that they're like passing the same $5 bill. I guess, right. I guess so. Uh, that, that's sort of like, um, you know, it's, uh, if, if, if you promote my book and I promote your book, we just need to fake it till we make it. And, uh, as the various companies collapse down into one, I become a tour editor, you become a tour editor. <laughs> uh, we edit I each other's feel books. Like <laughs> if it were that easy, that I would be as famous as Charlie Jane Anders is right now. Um, and I'm not. Yeah, uh, they, they, um, the two of them have a podcast, which, gives you something, but I knew them from io9, I guess, originally. Um, or maybe Emily Newitz was on Boing Boing? I can't remember. They, they, they did io9. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Or they, they took it over from somebody else, perhaps. Yeah. Isn't that Gawker? I don't really know. Yes, it was Gawker Media. Yeah. There's a bunch of, there was like a Jalopnik, a whole bunch of different uh, blogs, back when blogs existed. How can you, like, I don't understand how people have the energy to, like, write books and manage a website and have a blog. <laughs> like, I, I can barely... They, oh, they have a producer, my friend. <laughs> and to write books. They know, have a producer. And writing, writing And books, they also don't do a lot of research. They say, our topic for day is H.P. Lovecraft. And then one of them has read everything by H.P. Lovecraft a long time ago. Nobody else should read it ever again. The other one says, I feel like I never need to read Lovecraft and never has. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, also at the end, E.A. E. Poe was overrated. Like just a, like, like a, oh, I forgot to mention this troll in case you're upset. <laughs> if, in case I haven't upset you. E.A. Poe was overrated. What? That's, that's pretty much it. Uh, so, I mean, if you make the argument Edgar Allan Poe was overrated, I'm like, compared to what? <laughs> like, I, I, may, I might listen to the argument Charles Dickens was overrated because so, uh, I don't get I don't get his massive massive appeal myself. Have you have you read A Tale of Two Cities? I feel like no, I it's haven't. very different. It's very different from his other books. It's historical fiction, which he usually doesn't write, mm -hmm. but like. It's just like a science fiction story, except instead of the setting being another planet, it's London and France. Yeah, I I, I, I vaguely know the story, but I it's a I've really not read it. a good story. It's got like a doppelganger. It's long though, right? It's not that long. No? It's like a science fiction. Really? A tale? It's probably oh. two hundred pages. Two hundred. Oh, really? Okay. Maybe it's longer. I don't know. It is That's not that 1859. Easy. It is uh, how long is it? it? Doesn't say. It's serialized. Like it's it's like this old guy, and he spent like his whole life in prison, and like his his I think his daughter gets him, picks him up from the prison because he's been let out. And he's this old man who can like barely like is 13, barely 13, hour, 13 and a half hours. So it's not super short, but. No, so, so it's two science fiction books. Yeah. You know, uh, see, this, like is, this. this is why I like talking to other people, because 
You seem like a reasonable fellow. You like Charles Dickens. This is a good example. I mean, I don't love Charles Dickens. Oh, okay. Never mind. I haven't (laughs) read like a whole bunch, but A Tale from Two Cities is, if you like, like the old science fiction, like it's got like, like this guy who's a lawyer and he's really successful, but he looks identical to this guy who's like this loser, like vagabond. Mm. And so like they're able to impersonate each other and they both love the same woman. It's got like all of these like, but it, it's 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 really good. But it's unlike his other books. It, hmm. you, it, like like you know like some people say like oh you either like Heinlein or you like a stranger in a strange land. Uh, but if you like Heinlein, you probably don't like a stranger in a strange land. Yeah, I don't love stranger. Yeah, it, it's kind of like that. Like like it's very different from his other stuff. So you either like a tale of two cities or you like all Dickens other stuff. But you probably <laughs> won't like both. Well. I'll leave it aside then for now. I got other stuff to read. <laughs> it's really good. It's like and it's it's a really gripping like story of like political intrigue and adventure and like subterfuge and like like political anger and angst and like chopping people's heads off <laughs> and chopping babies' heads off and like blood running through the gutters of the streets like like a spilled barrel of wine and like mm. oh it's good well, it sounds like it's you, it's, you need to argue for Rouge. argue for it ahead uh, again and I'll I'll get on the list and eventually I'll I'll do it um but yeah I'm getting a little uh, I've got to use the bathroom yeah no worries I got a class in 15 minutes oh man alright they're, well, they're, they're also going to do a slaughter here today I'm going to chop a all slaughter the, yeah the, because there's too many roosters, you know. Your your class is gonna butcher your, your <laughs> no, my mom. Room. My mom's gonna butcher a bunch of her chickens. Whoa, that's uh, you know I've never owned farm animals. I'm I'm like you know New York, New Jersey, like that kind of thing. Jersey cows. <laughs> you know they did used to um, allow like in. It, People, rich people who had a lot of land, they would get a farm animal and they would put it on their land, and then they would say, "Well, I'm a farm now, right. so I only have to pay a dollar in property tax every year." Yep. But they eliminated that uh, a couple decades ago, um, obvious reasons because people are taking advantage of it. You know, um, we have something they, in BC called uh, the uh, Agricultural Land Reserve. Uh, you know, it's really interesting. Uh, I, I'm always, I didn't send it to you, um, but my friends Mice and Will, who didn't show up today, I sent it to them. Um, most of the time, when you think about government stuff, you think, oh shit, government's fucking up again. Um, but uh, since since um, this party change in PC, there's just been a series of like good things, like series of them. And the latest one, uh, June 1st, was... Um, uh, 21 small minor medical ailments. You can now just go to the pharmacy, and the pharmacist can give you a prescription and fill it. Um, like that's a really good idea because we have to we have to go to a doctor first, even if it's in a walk-in clinic. It's just an extra step, right? If you've got a uh, very treatable disease um, or uh, ailment, you know, uh, and some of them are like birth control pills and stuff like that, but others are like um, uh, skin irritation. Right, you just got sure. something. You just get a regular prescription. Um, you go in there, give me your driver's license, because that's how our social insurance, our health insurance is managed now. Right, it's just through your 
a government health card. Um, and then they give you your prescription after, you know, they ask you what's wrong. Um, like, that's just a really good change. Why did they do that? Oh, because, like, government can actually make changes that uh, help. So in BC, we have lots of, like, legacy stuff like that. One of them is the Agricultural Land Reserve, which is because we're a mountainous country or mountainous region, you know, British Columbia, it's a lot of mountains. Um, that means there's limited uh, land for uh, farming. And what happens if, if you have uh, paved over all your land is you have no domestic food production. And what happened during COVID? They shut down the border, <laughs> right? So that agricultural land reserve means, yeah, we had uh, a shortage of Alberta beef, right? Mm. But we had some beef because we have some local yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, it's, it's like a separate system. And having that agricultural land reserve means you actually have food production in the place where you live and it's not all, um, it's not all imported, which means sure. you're not subject to the price shock. So we don't have the egg problem you guys had. Uh, in this, apparently there was an egg shortage in the States. I don't understand. The, the eggs got very expensive. Yeah. You could, th- there wasn't really a shortage because the price balanced it out. Right. The, the demand, but, uh, there was, they were very expensive. Yeah. But because of the high price, fewer people were buying it, so there's less yeah. demand. So I've been so. joking about my mom. Uh, she keeps buying, uh, uh incubators. <laughs> I was like, this is a uh, chicken coin, a <laughs> chicken coin miner. <laughs> if uh, like if there was no food supply to New York, if like it got cut off for some reason, like a war or something, like it'd yeah. be out of food in a couple of weeks. Yeah, like, of course. It, I've seen like studies, like two or three weeks, New York would just be out of food, yeah. and then there would be horrible riots because everybody would be very. It's very densely populated, right. and everybody would be very hungry. And um, they're so trying to fuck. Uh, they're deliberately trying to fuck things up. Uh, because they can squeeze a little bit of profit here a little. And so, like, when you have, like, a government that isn't completely, completely obsessed with, you know, not caring about getting reelected, I guess, or, you know, care, just somehow caring about what the citizens want somehow, it's really refreshing. <laughs> just, like, very unusual. Uh, and, you know, you can get, you can get cynical. But I'm like, look, it's possible. It's not impossible for the good things to happen. Like they, they literally eliminated the, the uh, uh, minimum anybody had to pay for healthcare. Everybody used to have to pay a certain percentage, you know, like a fee based on your income. They just eliminated that. Says this is silly. Um, we all have, we all use the same healthcare system. Garnishing that, like figuring out that amount and making people remit it is just making work. Everybody's gonna, everybody pays their taxes anyways. You might as well just, uh, eliminate that because it's just an inefficiency left over from a previous, uh, system. Why, why do that? Because it helps people. Weird idea. Strange. Why would we do this? <laughs> or, uh, bridge taxes, right? Uh, toll bridges. Right? We we paid for this years ago. Why are we still collecting it? Because it's a source of revenue. Well, then we should stop well, doing it. I think the, the the stated reason for the tool is to cut down traffic because there's too much traffic. <laughs> yeah, let's reduce the uh, amount of traffic in, in the province. That's a good idea. Well, 
<laughs> I don't know. I mean, I live right by the George Washington Bridge, which is the major bridge into Manhattan. Yeah. And uh, New York wants to raise all the, the prices to drive into Manhattan because there's too much congestion. But New Jersey gets angry because it's already a lot. I think it's like probably $17 to drive across the bridge or something. Yeah, ridiculous. Um, you know, uh, but if they didn't charge anything, it would be too popular. There'd be too many people driving and New York would get too crowded and the bridge would get too crowded. So mm. they got to cut it down somehow. Um, you know, that's what uh, our governor, do, do you know Bridgegate, Chris Christie, governor? Yeah, vaguely. So uh, Fort Lee is the is the town on the New Jersey side of the George Washington Bridge, mm-hmm. and the mayor of Fort Lee didn't support Chris Christie. Right. In, in, yeah, in I remember this blockage thing. So he was doing. angry. So he shut down a lane of the bridge. He said mm-hmm. that they were like doing fake work on it, you know. And so it was congested. And there was traffic jams like all through Fort Lee, like going like way out the bridge, just because they shut down down a lane. And so they're doing like work on it when they weren't. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, if they, if they like, it really is a problem. And I guess they may need like a wider bridge or a bigger island than Manhattan or, or something. I, I don't know. <laughs> they need to change something. They need to do something. But in lieu of that, there are these you know, things called infrastructure that they can build. You know, they just choose not yeah. to. I I don't know. Uh, like Manhattan, it's pretty built up already. Yeah, I don't know what and a lot of empty that. buildings apparently. The island is so built up that it's actually sinking. I believe it. Because it's too much weight on there. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting because I read like there's an old 19th century science fiction short story about Manhattan sinking. And the reason it sinks is that through some statistical anomaly, too many people are standing on one side of the island (laughs) and the other at a particular time. So it flips into the sea, into the Hudson. And that's silly and ridiculous and laugh. <laughs> but now there's like so much weight on the island that it's actually sinking. So maybe the guy was, was correct. <laughs> maybe maybe this is possible. Yeah. I'm not so worried. <laughs> I, I think it's sinking, but uh, due to uh, massive corruption rather than. <laughs> Could um, be. Yeah, rather than uh, too many people standing on it. You know, there's an area. Uh, called the Bronx, mm-hmm. okay? It's B-R-O-N-X, mm-hmm. the Bronx. And the way it got that name is that, like, way before the English came, there was a Dutch guy who lived there, and he was the only guy there, who, and he farmed, and his name was Bronk, B-R-O-N-C-K. So he left, and the English came, and they were farmers, and they weren't literate. And so a cartographer came, and they said, well, what's this creek called? And they said, we call it the Bronx Creek, Mm -hmm. like Bronx Creek, Mm -hmm. like with an apostrophe. But the cartographers misheard him. Instead of Bronx with an apostrophe, they spelled it Bronx, B-R-O-N-X. And Mm. then they put a the in front of it, so it became the Bronx. The Ukraine. And then it became the Bronx. So the the name is just based on people, like, misunderstanding each other. The Gotham. (laughs) (laughs) And that's that's how uh, it got its name. Yep. Uh, You know know the song Kumbaya? (laughs) Vaguely, yes. 
you know, Kumbaya, my, my love. Friend. Yeah. Kumbaya. Well, the way that song came about was uh, in the 1930s, there's folkways, the Smithsonian mm-hmm. folkways. Mm-hmm. This was uh, anthropologists going around America and asking people for their folk songs. Right. So they went to North Carolina where people who speak a language called Gullah live. Mm-hmm. Gullah is a combination of Queen's English and African. Yeah. And it was like, you know, escaped slaves on North Carolina speaking this language. So they have a song called Come By Here. Mm. And they, they sing it. They sing your song and they say, Come by here, my lord. Mm-hmm. Come by here. And the, anthrop- the anthropologists, they heard Kumbaya, mm-hmm. and they didn't hear Come By Here. <laughs> and so they wrote it down, Kum- they spelled it uh, literally, uh, yeah. Kumbaya, K-U-M-B, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so like that became the song that, that's known as Kumbaya, and nobody knows the original words, which is the English words Come By Here, mm-hmm. that the anthropologists didn't understand because of the accent and, and language differences. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was just a different pronunciation. So, like, it changes. And that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. It is very interesting. Yeah. All right. Thank so, you, sir. Uh, I got a class in six minutes. Have yeah. a good one. All right. Have fun. I'll, good see, you on the, I'll see you on Twitter. Week. Thank you. All right. And the next, uh, the next podcast, too. Uh, what's the next one? Am I not invited? No, yeah, you're invited to anything you like. Uh, invitations to the game. You're not. You're invited to that. But you're not listed. Uh, Do you want I to be wanna, on that? I think the next one is the Char- Dick one, right? Uh, okay. Yeah. The Dick or the Burrows? Burrows yeah. is uh, the week after. You're on both. You're scheduled for both Progeny right. and then Pirates of Venus. And I'll see you on Twitter and I'll see you there. Good one, Jesse. Have yeah. One. Thanks, Jonathan. Right. Bye. <laughs> This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio. See on my way back home. Um, I will not be out of the country again until... Well, actually, uh, two weeks from now, when I'm joining the podcast again, uh-huh. I will be in an airport. <laughs> airport headed where? Uh, on my way back to Ecuador, where my lady oh, friend. Uh, uh, how's stationed. the airport Wi-Fi? Is my question. Or I guess uh, you don't well, have I'll to be, use Wi-Fi, right? I'll be in the U.S., so yeah, I, I won't. It's going to be terrible. To, you <laughs> Well, no, yeah, you don't probably. actually have to use Wi-Fi now that I think about it. You can use um, cell cellular. Probably yeah. better. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. I'll just use my data. Yeah. All right. Um, it's, Jonathan's very new to audiobooks, so <laughs> he's always updating me on his progress. <laughs> he's like halfway through <laughs> or whatever. Finished. Nice. I listened to most of it, but I had also got I so I had bought a copy of the of a, like an old paperback that's got like a really fun picture of um it's gonna be the Daryl uh, Nicodemus and Carnivore yeah. on it yeah that's the one. for the podcast oh yeah. uh, you're right okay. yeah you're right. <laughs>
All right. Um, so while we wait a minute in case somebody shows up, uh, next week is Invitation to the Game by Monica Hughes. That's a VR novel. Uh, Charwoman's Shadow by Lord Dunsany is the week after. Scratch One, Michael Crichton. Black House, Stephen King and Peter Straub. Uh, Progeny by Philip K. Dick. I think that's the one Tommy's on, right? No? I don't see your name on there. Um, oh, well, I think I should be on for Charwoman as well. Yeah, you are. That was okay. The one. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, the, I see me, I don't see me on Progeny for Philip K. Dick, and the ninth, I don't think I'll be able, I might be able to do. Huh? I'm gonna be finishing up a thing in Baltimore. But I've seen me on for the meeting with Medusa Arthur C. Clarke on the 23rd. Yeah. Um, and between that and Progeny is uh, Pirates of Venus, which is exciting. Um, and then Sailing to Byzantium. Then Farnham's Freehold. Yay! Wait, and we're doing Farnham's Freehold? It's on the schedule. Yeah. Oh, my now God. on the schedule, please. Yeah, you're already listed. Am I on Pirates of Venus? Uh, Yes. Let's see. And Paul's even on for Farnham's Freehold. Yay! <laughs> I, uh... Well, am I? Yep. I'm, did I say yes to this? Uh, okay, your, your so... Your name's there. Okay, so yeah, I'm not available for the Lord Dunsany because I'll be out. I'm not available for the Venus and meeting with Dusa because I'll be up on the North Shore. Um, and then No Man's Land by no Man, what, John oh, Buchan. John, mm-hmm. John Buchan. Mm. Yeah, some old weird fiction. But, uh, I haven't... Do you need somebody for the Dunsany? I haven't really read that much of him, but I hear about him. You should read some Dunsany. I'm not sure this is uh, his best book. It's a novel, Um, but I hear it's interesting. I think it's one of his better novels. I've only read read his short stories mostly. I read King of Elfland's Daughter years and years and years ago, and it was yeah, yeah, yeah. We did that one. Yeah, uh, and uh, like I started reading some like short stories of his, mm-hmm. and it was like, like it was really weird. It was like, <laughs> like kind of like supposed to be like pseudo like Indian or pseudo like Eastern or Oriental or whatever, but it was yeah. like when the god. Dutsu made the and it was just nonsense. I couldn't take it. You uh, have to be in the right headspace for it, I think. Speaking but, of which, you know, I do have uh, mm-hmm. the two uh, books that were edited by Lynn Carter, the two collections, and I should I should crack those open sometime and take a look. I'm just not that excited to, to really read Dunsany. Yeah. Um. He's uh he's good at least in short fiction. He's also interesting in poetry, but I prefer his short fiction. He's got a lot of short fiction. I've only read uh yeah, the King of Elfland's Daughter in his longer form and then he there's um I don't remember if I read the novel or not, but there's a novel uh Dean Spanley that that turned into a movie that's very funny. Um he becomes very interested in dogs in later life. <laughs> um, Dean Spanley is about a uh, uh, parson who was reincarnated from a dog. <laughs> what? Yep. It's, it's a good movie, too. Um, it stars uh, the guy you like, Paul. 
Which guy I like. Um, he he was in that uh, that movie you're always quoting from. I'm quoting from lots of movies. Sam Neill. Sam Neill. Oh, you, oh, Sam Neill. From you, you talking about? Oh, Sam Neill. Yes, from In the Mouth of Madness. So yeah, he plays a a uh, person who was re uh, reincarnated that, from a dog. That's not even the first movie he's played a. Um, well, actually, I'm saying Parson. I I I, I yeah, just don't remember what um, kind of. He, I'm, I'm, I mean, he deals with a parson in that um, other movie where he plays the bohemian artist. I can't remember the name of that movie. Offhand. The book is called My Talks with Dean Spanley, and the movie's just Dean Spanley, which is not a very good title for telling you what kind of genre it is. No, it does not. Because um, it's just, uh, you know, but uh, it's Sam Neill, Jeremy Northam, Brian Brown, and Peter O'Toole. And uh, it's a good yeah. movie. Um, kind of like that one, uh, I was tweeting about yesterday. What was it called, Paul? I'm not Adapted sure. from one? the, from the, uh, vintage season. Oh, right. That one. It yes. has two titles. One is, um, Timescape, which is. Timescape, which, yeah, yeah not a great title. Yes. And the other title is Grand Tour. Um, and also it, not a great title. Vintage but, but season that, is but, a better but, but, title. But, well, at least Grand Tour gives the sense of what the time travelers are Not doing. Not really. Sorry. Yes, because that, because it, because it's it's made clear that that's what they're doing. They're t- they're touring the best seasons uh, of of all time and space. Yeah, that's at not least, what the movie's about exactly. No, but that's what the that's movie's that's the, not good. No, but no, no, it movie, gets the really good. Awful. No, the movie is terrible. The movie is not a great adaptation at all. I, I don't know. What I haven't I haven't read the book, but. It's a, it's a, it's a long the movie story. gets really good about an hour and twenty minutes in, and then it go it sort of overstays its welcome. But you know, it's it's like these strange visitors show up at a guy's hotel. He's got all sorts of local small town issues. His wife's dead. He's an alcoholic. His daughter is being uh, taken from him by his uh, father-in-law, and then. Um, the tourists show up and they're time traveling tourists who are visiting various disaster places. And I'm like, this is kind of lame. He's kind of passive. Everything's slow. And, and then it, it starts accelerating suddenly and like, oh, he's time traveled. He goes back in time and, and convinces himself, uh, they need to work together. And so you get a bunch of scenes where Jeff Bridges is talking to Jeff Bridges. It's very, uh, Robert Heinlein. Yeah, but it has nothing to do with the actual story. It's I like, agree. I agree. It, it it's is quite compl- different. That's I know why Vintage Season is not a good title for the movie either. I, I don't know this movie, but some of the best movie adaptations of books have nothing to do with the book. I think uh, it's like, better when they uh, interpret the Like Dune? Interpret the story. <laughs> like Dune. Oh, Jesse, Jesse. When they... Uh, when they, they, they do like an interpretation rather than just trying to film the book. Like, I'm not even sure this is a, I'm not even sure it was an interpretation. It's like we're gonna just buy the rights to this thing and do what the heck we want. Is more like still it. talking about Dune Paul? No. Is this the new Dune that we're talking about? No, no, we're talking about <laughs> the yeah, original. We're talking I'm kinda of making fun of the new Dune. Dune. He's making fun of the new he's making fun of New Dune. Yeah. New Dune, which is I mean, it's been so long since I read the book. Yeah, I I was playing this board game. There's a game called Dune Imperium. It's a a deck building game. It's really Mm -hmm. good. Yeah, it's like already like in the top ten on Board Game Geek, and 
And I was like, oh, man, I haven't seen this movie yet. I really kind of want to because it's been so long. So, like, I it reminded me of what happened in the book, but I couldn't I did feel like it was it had moved a bit away from it. But I couldn't remember quite how much, you know what I mean? Because it's been probably over a decade since I read the book. What's the Philip K. Dick you have coming up? Uh, Progeny, I believe. Is that a, I don't know that. It's a short a story. Um, I think it's about an hour long. And it's about, uh, as usual, um, Philip K. Dick has an, uh, stand-in Philip K. Dick character has an autistic kid who's being raised by robots and wears a cape. Uh, not the oh. robots, the kid. Um, and, yeah, uh, too bad. <laughs> hey, Martian Time Slip has an autistic kid in it too. He loves autistic kids. I, why? Do you have an autistic um, it's where, where a good question. From? It's a good question. Yeah, yeah because, because Child, in the, it, possibly he dealt with autism himself. I mean, usually. Well, he's he, he, he was not. He was not autistic. Um, okay. No, but he has an autistic uh, kid. In, he was very um, sensitive. What's, in um, what's it called? It's in Martian uh, Times Small Land. Yeah, he's. It's it's all over his fiction. Yeah. Um. So my theory is that it's Christopher Tolkien. No, not Christopher Tolkien. Christopher Dick, the one we never hear from. There's Isa Dick who runs the estate, and there's another sister too. And then there's this, but you know, I'm not a Philip K. Dick bio expert. I'm only an expert on his brain, not his history. Uh, he loves boobs. He loves coffee. He's a sweaty, big, hairy guy, and he's obsessed with autism. Um, yeah, I thought like I mean, I in Martian times. I did not know he was sweaty, big, or hairy. Oh, he think he, whenever he has a a man, um, sort of hanging around a girl, he's sweaty, big, and hairy. Yeah, mm. he's talking about himself. He was if you ever seen Philip K. Dick with his shirt off, he he's like an ape. Mm. <laughs> he's a very hairy man. Um, I'm looking at images of him now. Yeah. Oh yeah. I thought strong beard too. Oh yeah. yeah. Interested in autism just because it wasn't very well understood while he was writing. Dude, I've never heard of it. Fiction writer. I heard about it through him in the 80s. I think. I never heard of yeah. it before. I you know, know just like they were popular. interested in a lot of new things that weren't understood. Yeah, it was I mean, speculative. He could imagine what what it was. Well, he he uh, whatever he got, you know, he he went to. Uh, psychiatrists and stuff and uh, they would tell him stuff and he would take it all in and say oh my god and he would see you know he bef- he, he did that whole book about the planet full of uh, or the moon that's clans of the alphane moon clans of the alphane moon which they're trying to talk about turning into a tv show a terrible idea terrible idea yeah, like we got this property and Philip Kinnick's real popular let's do a an unadaptable book <laughs> as a TV show. Maybe that'll work. No. Yeah, if you need, if you, uh, if you, I, I could do the Dick story. Yeah, I, I like it's nice Dick. and short. They're they're very deep. I uh, I'll see if you're not at it already. Um, yeah, progeny. There it is. All right, comma Jonathan. Can you guys hear that in the background? Yes, I hear bird. So, yeah. You first learned about autism from reading Philip K. I'm pretty sure, yeah. Because, uh, you know, Martian Times... How did slept. that affect your views of uh, autism and autistic people? Um, how did it affect it? 
it made me aware. <laughs> I, I'm I'm not I'm not sure that anybody's um, good at explaining what's going on there. I think it's like schizophrenia. It's it's not really. It's also another topic he deals with, right? So yeah, yeah, mental illness. He's a uh, he's a really interesting writer. All right. Um. So I yeah I have a feeling we're not going to gain any more participants. Any more so? Yeah. So we can get started. So maybe we should take a rocket ship to a planet. Uh, or 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 a corridor in time. I think take a I think I'd rather take the tunnel. You know, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. All right. Way more interesting. All right. I'm going to get the Wikipedia entry out so I don't get the date wrong. Wikipedia, and it's called Shakespeare's Planet, and it's C-Mac. All right. Yeah, it's very brief. I'm going to turn my phone to sleep, and hopefully we won't get too interrupted by dogs, cows, or what's that other thing? (laughs) Yeah, the birds. Um... They're just they're just it's chirping the Those they're those are all chicks. Not, um, not if I birds. if I have notes about stuff that I potentially wanted to bring up, should I just like mention should I mention them now so you guys can think about it or no, no, do you no. want me we're to gonna, we're gonna start them. in a minute and I'm gonna say Tommy has notes. <laughs> and get you to pick okay. one, okay? Okay. Alright. Um all right, so Shakespeare's planet and just make sure everybody's here. Paul, Will's not here. Mice is not here. Marissa's not here. Tommy and Jonathan. So it'd be Jesse, Paul, uh, Tommy, Jonathan? Yeah. Yes. That's okay. Right. Sounds good. All right. Here we go. not finished. Uh, the other, the other guest of honor, Clifford D. Simak. This is really a tough business tonight, giving me two guys like this to introduce. Because Clifford D. Simak is the Harry Warner Jr. of Prodom. <laughs> I mean, he, he, he's a benevolent man. He, he, he exudes goodness and the milk of human kindness. And it is really a challenge to, to say something unkind or even barbed about Cliff Simak. Uh, I'm gonna try, but... He's also a newspaper man. He works for the, the, the Minneapolis Bugle, which is published in a limited hectographed edition in St. Paul. He, uh, he is the, the silage and sorghums columnist. A few years ago, uh, Barbara and I were out in uh, the Twin Cities and we called on, on Cliff's uh, office, saw him in his uh, function as journalist. He was off in the corner there pushing computer buttons and, and, and making things dance and hop. And he showed us how a great city newspaper is run. It's, it's all done by uh, mirrors and lies and imagination. And, uh, and then we went out to dinner and, and, and Cliff told us anecdotes about the editors he has dealt with in his nearly 40 years as a science fiction editor. And Pals, I just can't repeat those stories. Not in front of a mixed audience. You think Cliff Simic is saintly, don't you? You think he is a sweet, kindly... Well, let me tell you. Behind this facade of mild humanitarian benevolence, there lurks 
Uh, well, an Asimov in disguise. Uh... <laughs> A, 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 a gray-haired, beaming Ellison hammering to get out. <laughs> I mean, don't, don't take him at face value. When he writes these kindly old stories that begin with the line like Sam Jones was sitting on his front porch in the wheelchair, beware, because there's a, there's a barb in the tail of the story somewhere. It's, it's not as folksy as it sounds. Uh, Cliff Simak began writing science fiction somewhere around the time Isaac reached puberty. <laughs> and has continued ever since, uh, picking up acclaim and Hugo's and a great deal of money along the way. Uh, a book called City, which uh, is probably out of print now because that's the way things happen in this business. Uh, one of the, the undying classics of science fiction. If, if any, any list of the 20 science fiction novels were drawn up, it would have to have City on it. He wrote a bunch of other stuff too, maybe you've, you've read it, according to the checklist in the program book that most of that is out of print too. I think Cliff should have a long talk with his publishers. Uh, although he does date as a writer from the Gernsback era, believe it or not, he's one of those rare birds who has managed to stay with it, to evolve, to remain active and alert, and still a, a cherished contributor to science fiction here in his fourth or fifth decade among us as a, a writer. And long overdue, he has been chosen tonight as our professional guest of honor. Clifford D. Simak. Bob, for all the nice things you said about me. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Lewis, Mr. and Mrs. Silverberg, Mr. Warner, distinguished guests and member, members of the committee, ladies and gentlemen. I am deeply appreciative of the honor of standing here tonight. Thank you for having me. Of late years, there have been some derogatory things said of science fiction. Tonight, I propose to say some decent things about it. And in speaking of science fiction, I should emphasize perhaps that the, under the heading, I also include fantasy, sword and sorcery, and any other category into which the field may be splintered. I have heard it said that science fiction has lost its sense of wonder, that too many bad stories are being written, that much of it is unreadable. I think that people who say these things may be basing their judgment, judgments on too shallow a perspective. In some cases, it may be their bias rather than their critical judgment that comes into play. To make such a judgment, it seems to me that we should take the long view, that we should go back to the early 30s and take a closer look at what has happened in our field. Let us go back to the days of the mad scientist, to the time of the bug-eyed monster, 
through the era of the man-eating plant. From such a position in the past, and looking forward to the present day, I would venture that any fair-minded observer would be willing to admit that we had chalked up some progress. But, you say, there was a sense of wonder then. I grant you that. We were starry-eyed in those days. It was all so new and wonderful, and we were very young. The sense of wonder, my friends, was never in the stories, but only in ourselves. It is we, tired and jaded from having read so much, who have lost the sense of wonder. I have never raised a question, but I would guess that even now, the sense of wonder still exists among those young readers who may have been newly introduced to science fiction. And the bad stories? What about those, you ask? Aside from the fact that whether a story is bad or good is a matter of personal taste and critical judgment, and applying only a crude rule of thumb criterion, if you look back to the beginning of modern science fiction, you will realize there have always been bad stories. I am quite willing to admit that I have written more than my fair share of them. There isn't a writer here tonight who hasn't a few stories to his credit that he'd be happy to forget. Science fiction in this wise is no different than any other type of fiction. If you don't believe me, read some of Faulkner's early efforts and some of Hemingway's, not to mention Fitzgerald and many others. I would hazardly guess that if a panel of competent critics were to make a survey of science fiction through the years, they, through the years, they would find far more praiseworthy pieces of fiction writing in the last few years than in any previous period. And that does not exclude the so-called golden age of science fiction. And when you get around to those unreadable stories, you must not lose sight of the fact that whether a story is readable or unreadable depends entirely upon the person reading it. This is an extremely nebulous area in which to make a judgment. I will mention no names or titles, for I should be ashamed to. But I must confess that for me there are certain stories that are unreadable. The horrible thing about this is that some of them have been critically acclaimed as masterpieces. No doubt they are, but I still can't read them. And yet, I consider that it would be impudent and perhaps even a little stupid of me to go about proclaiming them as unreadable. Aside from all of this, I see many hopeful signs for science fiction, and I think that they should not be overlooked. A number of new writers who have entered the field in recent years gives me considerable hope that the old tradition forged back in the 30s and 40s will not only be carried on, but enriched and strengthened. This gives me more satisfaction than I can possibly express, for it means that something that old-timers like Edmund Hamilton and Jack Williamson and many others helped to build will rise to greater heights than any of us could have dreamed back in the days of the far beginning. It also makes me think that there must be something viable and vital in the field to attract such talent.
the one thing that has been most attractive about science fiction through the years is that it has provided a framework in which a writer can say certain things he wants to say and to a better advantage than any other form of writing. It is a forum for ideas and it is essential that it attract new talent if it is to continue in this function. Another encouraging aspect of recent years is the emergence of a fairly large body of responsible critical assessment. In years past, we had only a few critical voices. Today, we have a score or more. And as the years go on, there's reason to believe this number will grow. I take this to mean that the body of literature we have developed finally has been judged competent of critical notice. For a writing form that had such humble beginnings to achieve such notice, triumph. Tied in with this critical assessment has been the acceptance that has been given science fiction in our schools, both at the high school and college level. If our work is a judge of a value that makes it acceptable in the classroom, we may be well content that it indeed has made some progress. I regard also as hopeful the evidence in the last few years that the field has the capability of responding to evolutionary ferment. When any endeavor, be it literature, politics, economic, engineering, or science, becomes frozen in a status quo beyond which its practitioners fear to move, that endeavor has reached a dead end. I think we have rather recently developed, demonstrated we have reached no dead end. A few years ago, there was a great controversy and a fierce outcry over the so-called new wave writing. I am not entirely sure, even now, I know what the new wave was or is. I think I know something about it, but probably I fail of complete understanding. I do not think complete understanding is necessary to see what has happened or may still be happening. I may be wrong, but it seems to me that the new wave has become, or is in the process of becoming, a very important part of science fiction. Our field of writing seems to have had the capacity to absorb and offer a place to this new way of writing, being made the richer for it without in any way being forced to give up the old traditional and basic values. We were faced by a change and accepted it and made it a part of us. In somewhat less spectacular fashion, science fiction in the past has responded to changes and some sure instinct in us has always managed to make these changes an improvement while the basic spirit of the literary form was retained. Back in the late 30s, the old format was replaced by more nationalistic writing. Sometimes in the, sometime in the middle 40s or thereabouts, we began to write about politics, economics, ethics, and other matters that had not before been given room in the old format. And while these changes stand out sharply in my mind, there were, as the years went on, other changes just as significant. The point is that science fiction has been and still is flexible. 
and within that flexibility lies its greatest promise. There's just one thing further that I would like to say. I say it with all the goodwill in the world. I am well aware that controversy, representing many points of view, is a healthy thing. When we no longer hold differing viewpoints, we will tend to become complacent and may no longer care, and our field and consequence will suffer. But there are times when I am somewhat distressed at the shrillness of some of the controversy. I could wish for the good... I could wish for the good of all of us. The discussions might be carried on in a quieter voice and somewhat more reasonably. The field is large and there's room for all of us and for each of our personal viewpoints. There is no overriding urgency for any of us to feel the necessity to convert all the rest of us to our way of thinking. I know that to many of you tonight, my few decent words about science fiction may seem too simplistic. I have stated the obvious, but no one else had seemed about to do it. My affair with science fiction has been a long and devoted one, and in recent times I have cringed at some of the things that have been said of it. What I have said here tonight, I have felt for a long time badly needed saying. Thank you for listening. Too, but we, we have a lot of good writers. Good men are in shorter supply. He's okay.